I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Martin Picard. Martin is an associate professor of behavioral medicine at Columbia University, where his lab studies mitochondrial psychobiology, linking together the molecular processes within mitochondria with human experience. Mitochondria are important structures within each of our cells, and they perform a variety of critical tasks related to energy and metabolism. These structures are most famous for the role in ATP synthesis, which is basically how our cells produce energy, but they also do a lot more, which Martin got into. He explained what mitochondria are and why we have them. They were actually descended from ancient microorganisms that became integrated within our own cells. We talked about the mitochondrial genome, the genetic code within our mitochondria and what it does. We spent much of the time talking about the role of mitochondria in the biology of stress and aging, including how our mitochondria respond and change to exercise and how mitochondrial health can actually be measured. We talked about the role of epigenetics in aging and how mitochondria tie into that. We got into the phenomenon of gray hair, why does our hair often turn gray? And is this actually reversible? And it turns out there's a very interesting story there. We discussed the importance of mitochondria in our neurons and the mind-mitochondria connection. How much of what our brain does, including emotion, cognition, behavior, all the fancy stuff, depends in critical ways on our mitochondria and what's actually going on inside of individual neurons. So if you're interested in general health and wellness or the effects of exercise, genetics, diet on stress and aging, this will be a fascinating episode. Martin does a great job of bringing the world of mitochondria and what's going on inside of ourselves to life. And I learned a lot of fascinating biology that I was completely unaware of in this conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, if you enjoy the content on this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Also check out mindandmatter.substack.com. You're going to find there all the podcast episodes, links to both the audio and video formats. You'll find some of my long-form science writing tying into different subjects that I talk about with guests on the show. And you can subscribe to my free weekly newsletter, which comes packed with lots of useful information about the types of things that I cover on the podcast. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Martin Picard. 
Martin Picard, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Pleasure. Can you start off by just telling everyone what you do in your lab and what you research? Sure. So what we do, everything that we think about or you know do in the lab relates in some way or another to mitochondrial psychobiology. Uh, so we're a mitochondrial psychobiology lab, which basically means we're using mitochondria and some of the tools and, and insights and knowledge we have around mitochondrial biology to understand how brain and body talk to each other, right? Or this synergy of, um, of mind and, and mind and body. Uh, so we think a lot about mind-mitochondria. I see. So, so when you say psychobiology, you mean this, this communication between the brain and the body? Yes, I think the we can reduce the psyche, this the psyche part of psychobiology to the brain. I think there's probably more than that, uh, hmm. but uh, yes, mostly that that's what we're talking about. How do how do subjective experiences are related? The, the you know the human experiences, you know, more generally the psychological states that we experience, um, the things we think about, you know, the emotions we we live, and um, you know more elaborate constructs, psychological construct, like, you know, feeling like your life has purpose and has meaning, like there's good evidence. This actually relates to how well people age or your risk of developing certain diseases, uh, you know, over time. We don't really know how these things, these subjective human experiences are related to the biology, right? How are they transduced into biological molecular changes that manifest in some way or another in health, right? The ability to resist decay over time and <laughs> to remain healthy for decades uh, or, you know, risk of disease. So that's that that interface is, I think, where there's a lot of unknown and a lot of you know, gaps in knowledge. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they think about the mind and how the brain relates to that, they think naturally, both scientists and non-scientists, um, you know, about circuits and networks and the very complicated patterns of activity that are happening at you know, what you call the, the higher level of function, mm -hmm. they don't often think about what's going on at the single cell level or even inside of cells, whether that could be like in a moment to moment way, actually important for, for what our mental experience is like and, mm -hmm. and what our psychological experiences are like. So we're going to dive down to that level, which is super interesting, but to set the stage for people that don't have much background in cell biology. And you don't, you know, you don't, when you think about like psychology or neuroscience or consciousness, you don't necessarily, a lot of people don't think about cell biology first. That's sort uh -huh. of like a separate field. <laughs> you, many people think. Um, so what, start, what are mitochondria and why, what led you to sort of um, come at these questions from cell biology? Mm -hmm. Yes. And another way to think about this is what justifies our mitocentric <laughs> perspective and our mitocentric approach? Yeah. Um, I fundamentally, I think what drew me to mitochondria originally and what drives the focus of, of our lab on mitochondria is this fundamental role that energy plays in life. And... Uh, you know, if we think about where we come from, ultimately every life form on the planet comes from energy that travels as a light beam, you know, from this nuclear reactor in outer space. <laughs> so you get this beautiful energy that travels almost without loss, right? And then boom, it's absorbed by plants. And then that energy gets stored in some way in the carbon oxygen bond of the plant. Uh, and then at some point an animal comes along and then, you know, eats that. And then either we eat this or we eat the animal that ate that. Um, and then what the major difference between um, a cadaver, like a dead body or 
a thinking, feeling, you know, conscious person um, that experiences stuff, right, is really the flow of energy. Like the cadaver and the, the thinking conscious person that enjoys life, the main difference is not the number of cells, right? Mostly it's the same. If you die, the cells, number of cells stay the same. The number of genes stay the same. The or organization of the cells mm. stay the same in the brain, right? All the neurons, then the glial cells, all the networks are still there. But without the flow of energy, then you're more, you know, like the, your brain is a fatty blob <laughs> and the body is a bag of cells. But with the flow of energy, then this whole thing comes to life. And then, you know, experiences kind of emerges from this uh, energized or animated um, system. So recognizing that energy is fundamental to everything that lives uh, and the reason we breathe, right? And you could go so far saying the reason we evolved the lungs and a heart and a cardiovascular system, like our anatomy was all uh, optimized to deliver oxygen to, uh, you know, to fuel the process of life, to fuel kind of the inner uh, regulated fire that, you know, burns inside our cells. And then if you think, well, where does, where does that happen, right? Where is that energy being converted? Because we eat, you know, chemical substance, we eat chemistry, those carbon oxygen bonds, right, that store the energy of the, of the sun. And then we breathe in oxygen that the plants released in doing this this reaction powered by by the sun um, and then at some point this carbon oxygen the energy that's stored between the carbon and oxygen is freed boom right you 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 pop those away from one another you know with the help of oxygen and that releases energy and what life and you know biology has learned to do is to harness that energy in a beautiful you know way that just opens up, I think, degrees of complexity for, for biological systems. This very special life-giving reaction or process happens inside this little cellular structure um, that's called mitochondria. So, so what exactly are these things and how are they different from some of the other basic structures in our cells? Like what, what are they? Yes. So the, if you, you look at a cell you know, people tend to think of the cell membrane, right? So there's kind of the skin of the cell. And then inside there's a nucleus. Uh, most people have heard about the, the nuclear genome and the 23 pairs of chromosomes, half from mom, half from dad. And then the, the, in the soup, the inner soup of, of the cell, the cytoplasm, there are all of these organelles, these organ of the cell, right? So these kind of specialized subcellular structures and different organelles specialize in different things. So you have the endoplasmic reticulum that specializes in, you know, making specific proteins and little like working units for the cell. You have the, the Golgi that specializes in taking those proteins, processing them, kind of doing quality control and the packaging and like, you know, shipping out if that's the purpose of that cell. Uh, and then one of those organs, uh, the internal cellular organs is mitochondria. Uh, which there's a long history we can talk about if you're interested uh, of how these came to be. And there's really good evidence that when mitochondria came into the picture as endosymbionts, uh, they enabled complex multicellular life. So there's hundreds to thousands of them that are kind of um, running around inside the cell and they're, they're beautiful. Um, they're probably the most dynamic and complex uh, organelle inside the cell. They're also the only organelle to have their own genome, which is which makes them a little special. <laughs> uh, all the other organelles don't have DNA. It's all in the nucleus. And then the mitochondria have their own genome. It's a very small circular piece of DNA um, that's you know not very big, only has 37 genes on it, and only 
13 of those 37 code for proteins and uh, there are, but those are essential for, for energy transformation, this process of you know taking extracting energy from these carbon oxygen bonds, turning this into electrical energy or voltage potential, just like you know the energy in a battery. And then once you charge your battery, you can do all sorts of things. So mitochondria, as a result, do all sorts of things. They make ATP, right? But they also do uh, dozens of other critical functions that either allow the cells to live or cells to die. And so they have a very big say in what how cells behave. So we see them a lot more, uh, you know, closer to the driver's seat um, than the nucleus, which is more like a passive repository of information. Mm. You have this, the nucleus is more like a library, right? Of, mm, with yeah. 25-ish thousand books, <laughs> each book has a recipe, you know, which can be pretty complex, spread out over really long, you know, regions of, of genome. Uh, but those books, right, unless someone goes into the library, mm-hmm. turns on the lights, energy, uh, and then grabs a book and has an intention to do something with this gene, with this book, you know, it never gets read. So, uh, and what actually goes in there, picks up a book, turns it on, and then decides to do something with it, is uh, first moved by energy. If there's no energy in the cell, you know, books stay closed. And uh, once it's and the system is energized, now there's the potential, right, to get some of those books out and actually create something uh, using the information that's encoded in in, in the books. Um, so mitochondria play a really big role, right, as bringing genes to life and and others. And we have shown how mitochondria also produce signals that decide like which books you know, get open mm. uh, and when. And so there's a big fraction of the nuclear genome that's under mitochondrial regulation or under the control of energetic signals. And evolution, evolutionary speaking, this probably makes a lot of sense. You would want to tailor which genes you turn on, what the cell decides to do based on how much energy is available and based on other signals that mitochondria can perceive and, and integrate. Yeah, you want you want a librarian. You want some mechanism to direct uh, where you're looking and what you're what you're reading and, and how to read it. Right. Um, it can't all just sit there on its own. Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned some interesting things about mitochondria. There's a lot of them in each cell, it sounded like, hundreds or thousands in every single one of our cells. They've got their own genome and they're like, Literally, as I think you're going to explain to us, they're like cells within cells. Mm -hmm. So before we get to what they were or where they came from, maybe we should start with um, the most famous function associated with mitochondria, which Mm -hmm. is ATP and essentially energy production. So can you give everyone a basic overview of what what is ATP and what what do mitochondria do to create it? Yes. So uh, there are hundreds, two thousands. So if you look at a cell, there's typically like a few hundreds, maybe up to like a thousand or two thousand in the cells that have the most mitochondria. So that's kind of the the spectrum mm-hmm. from let's say one hundred to five thousand mitochondria per per cell. And then they change shape, so like counting them is actually a little difficult. Mm. Uh, but yes, what's ATP? Um, and I'd say the mitochondria don't produce energy, right? They transform energy. I see. So they take the energy that you eat in the form of glucose, let's say, break, and then it's broken down into two pieces, pyruvate by the glycolysis uh, pathway. And then mitochondria can take in pyruvate and then break those down into, you know, smaller pieces, strip off the hydrogen and the electrons from the, from those little three carbon backbones, uh, and then transform that energy into a membrane potential which is chemiosmotic theory, um, and then use that membrane potential, that voltage 
and pH differential across the inner mitochondrial membrane. So exactly like a battery, mm-hmm. right? Um, then once that battery is charged, there's you know there are dozens of things, uh, and you said it well. You know which fun- ATP synthesis as one of the functions. Right with an S uh, of mitochondria. So ATP synthesis happens when mitochondria decide to use this membrane potential. Right, so the mitochondria is, uh, mitochondrion is charged because it did all of this electron ripping off the the, the carbon backbones, uh, flung the electrons. Oxygen accepts it, which creates a driving force to pump protons across the plasma membrane. Now that this charge is there, the, the the mitochondrion can decide what to do with it. And it decides not kind of on its own, but based on what the cell needs. And right, so there's a lot of inputs that are integrated. And if there's a need for energy, right? So if in the cytoplasm somewhere, there are processes that are consuming ATP, so they're breaking ATP into ADP and phosphate. Now this is a signal that mitochondria can be, are sensitive to. And there are pores in the mitochondria where ADP can come in. And then if ADP comes in, this kind of drives the whole thermodynamic flux of, uh, of wanting to make ATP, right? And that happens in a very special protein that's a, a rotor-like um, multi-protein uh, big molecule. It's a big complex. It's called complex 5 or the AT- F0F1 ATP synthase in the mitochondrial inner membrane. And what this basically does is it couples the flux of something through a turbine looking like structure. Uh, it's called the C-ring inside the, the inner mitochondrial membrane. Hmm. And this is just like an electric turbine, like in a dam, right? If you think about yeah. hydroelectricity, you have a big dam. On one side, there's you know emptiness, the, the, the bed of the river that used to be there. And then on the upside, there's all of the water accumulated. So that's your... That's your potential. Potential energy. Yes, yeah. exactly. So this, this is potential energy that's stored right here in the height of the water. In the mitochondrion, it's stored at, as this uh, separation of charge, right? Protons on, on one side. And then if you open the gate and you f- have the water flow through the dam in through a turbine, right? It's going to use the force, the potential energy of the water, turn the turbine, and then you can decide to do something with this, right? So you, theoretically, you could couple the turbine to to a mill, right? To grind oat. So like windmill, or if you have a little stream, you can like, that, that's, that used to be done a lot, right? Uh, so in, the, in a hydroelectric dam, you couple this to uh, an electric motor, and then you can actually generate electricity and then send this off and people can power their home, charge their phone and power the computers with. Um, so that's, that's the fundamental process of ATP synthesis happens through extracting the, the this membrane potential, having the little turbine and the mitochondria turn and coupling this here, not to electricity production, but to ATP synthesis. So it's by turning the this complex five, this ATP synthase, you can bring ADP and phosphate very close to one another, and then boom, you push them together, and then that stores energy in the, in in this bond. Yeah. So these these really are like little molecular machines that behave like like little like battery, like little smart batteries that can move around, and they somehow suck in energy in the form of stuff from our food. And they do these transformations to power to power these little machines, as you were describing. And I think, I th- you know, we'll talk about what else they do. But it's so cool um, to hear about this if you've never heard about it before. And it also starts to make sense of like why an organelle 
is there and behaves like this in the first place to understand the evolutionary history. So where do these mitochondria come from and, and how does that start to relate to why they're so unique, why they have their own genome and why they can sort of behave almost like a little autonom autonomous uh, uh, cell within a cell? Yeah, and probably the simplest answer is uh, because they used to be autonomous. <laughs> they used to be you know cells of their own. And the story goes that about 1.2, 1.5 billion years ago, right? The only thing on the planet that existed were single cells uh, that couldn't use, um, you know, some of those cells couldn't use oxygen for, for energy. So all they could do was fermentation, right? So they could take, let's say, a carbohydrate and then ferment it to generate some ATP and then, let's say, to make ethanol. And then there were these other uh, alpha proteobacteria that could use oxygen. They were aerobic right? Aerobic, meaning they could use oxygen um, to, to derive energy from, um, from food substrates. So the aerobic bacterium, this alpha proteobacterium, uh, at some point, either it was eaten up, right, by the bigger uh, anaerobic cell, the bigger uh, fermenting cell, or maybe it invaded it. You know, I mm. think the, the jury is still out as to how this <laughs> initial date uh, you know, went. <laughs> but somehow a, a little cell got in a bigger cell. Correct. Yeah. Yes. And that little cell, uh, the, which was to be to become the mitochondria, was able to use oxygen, right? And then there's a few theories as to why, why this small cell, um, aerobic with its own genome, right, remained. Why it wasn't digested and, you know, eaten up, phagocytosed. Um, and you know, there are theories about oxygen and like the smaller cell now was eating up the oxygen. So the oxygen was not so toxic to the bigger cell. Uh, there's um, some theories about energy, right? Now this smaller cell was somehow producing energy that the bigger cell was able to use, mm -hmm. which is kind of the situation that we have now where the mitochondria uh, can produce ATP and then the ATP is used to power stuff, you know, throughout the, the whole cell. Um, and then there may be other things that, you know, haven't been fully developed that uh, enabled complexity and enabled kind of turned this unicellular fermenting anaerobic cell into a cell that now was able to engage into multicellular kind of social cooperative behavior. Um, and there's very good evidence that whatever the reason is that mitochondria kind of became set as an organelle of the cell, that transition or that that um, event of endosymbiosis was critical in the development of multicellular life. And then one cell was able to, you know, grow and then divide. And instead of two cells going their own way, now they started to derive some benefit. And uh, so maybe mitochondria played a role in allowing cells to exchange information with one another. Uh, and somehow that sets the stage for, you know, cells talking to each other and then uh, if you have a cell sharing something with another cell, now you know they they become kind of two pieces of a shared a shared collective. And yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because all the cells of our body need to communicate with each other. Like in some sense, right? They're all separate cells, but like what compels them to cooperate? That's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. But then at the lower level, right? You've got cooperation between each individual mitochondrion itself and the cell that it's inside of. Mm -hmm. So what, like there must be some kind of commu communication in there that keeps everything in sync in the sense of like, you know, if, if the big cell ate the little cell and kept it around, what prevents the little cell from just dividing and dividing and dividing until the big cell blows up? Mm -hmm. How are they literally communicating with each other inside of that bigger cell? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. 
I mean, there, there are labs, you know, around the world that focus on this, understanding biogenesis, mitochondrial biogenesis, and the regulation of how does the cell know how many mitochondria are there, mm -hmm. right? And how, many, how does the cell know how many to make at any, you know, given point in time uh, and controlling number of mitochondrial genomes, right? So there, there's, there's a lot of good work that's being done on this. Um, and there's some known, you know, uh, parts to this and uh, was clear as, as a necessary event, right? For two, two units, let's say two people, <laughs> two cells uh, or two organelles to uh, coexist, right? And be uh, mutually beneficial is that there needs to be communication. Mm -hmm. And communication is just this fundamental um, process that needs to happen at every level of um, of biological organization, from you know single proteins to to living animals and societies and uh, you know swarms and <laughs> and so on. So communication happens between the mitochondria and the nucleus. So you imagine the situation way back the the to be mitochondria, the alpha proteobacterium enters, and somehow now they were able to, there was some form of communication that developed uh, between the uh, ancestral mitochondria and then the nucleus, the genome. And uh, maybe the most kind of dramatic one way um, or permanent, I should say permanent form of communication was mitochondria shipping pieces of their genomes, mm. right? So shipping genes into the nucleus. And so as a result, now we have this small mitochondrial genome, like I mentioned, only has 37 genes. Uh, they used to have thousands, ah. right? So like there are thousands of genes in, that you, in the, the ancient mitochondrial genome that were shipped to the nucleus. And now mitochondria have about 1,300 proteins that are the best estimates. Uh, so it takes 1,300 proteins to make all the different kinds of, of mm -hmm. mitochondria in a human body, right? Different cell types have different kinds of mitochondria, different mitotypes. Um, and all of those genes, or 99% of those 1,300 genes are in a nucleus. So their nucleus contains like 25,000-ish genes. Of those 25,000, there are about 1,300 that code proteins that need to travel, and then they're actually mitochondrial proteins encoded in the nucleus. I see. So you're preempting a, a question that was popping up for me, which is, you know, how on earth do we know that, you know, a billion years ago or whatever, uh, this little cell inside of a cell shipped some of its genes into the nucleus of the bigger cell? And I guess one piece of evidence there is the proteins that get made from the nuclear DNA that go into the mitochondria presumably are good candidates for something that used to be in the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. What else, like, confirms that I'm trying to think of how you would even, how, how do we know that? Um, so I'm not a, an evolutionary biology expert, so other people will be much better positioned to answer that question. But <laughs> superficially, you can say circular genome. Yeah, you yeah. Know, what else in the world has circular genome? Uh, bacteria, you know, see, they I have see. plasmids, uh, circular genome with no ends, no like chromosomes, uh, no telomeres, right? So the, the circular DNA is kind of one very big hint that they used to be bacteria. Every other bacteria on the, and, mm -hmm. uh, on the planet that I know of has a circular genome. Uh, they have this like funny double membrane mm -hmm. structure and some bacteria have this funny double membrane. Um, and, uh, and then there, there's a few kind of more minor features mm -hmm. uh, that are, you know, shared across other life forms mm -hmm. that mitochondria share. And I suppose too, there is, we do know independently, I believe that at least in certain cases, there are bacteria that can chop off certain pieces of their genome and kind of ship them laterally. Yes. Yeah. Lateral gene transfer. Exactly. So this mito to nuclear 
gene transfer is uh, probably a form of horizontal gene transfer, right? Or lateral gene transfer. Horizontal, lateral are used interchangeably. Uh, and, you know, this still happens. There's, there's a few papers, you know, floating out there in the literature that show that on a regular basis, there might be some mitochondrial genes that make their way inside the nucleus. And these are called NUMITES, N-U-M-T-S, hmm. uh, for nuclear mitochondrial DNA um, insertions. And uh, so the, j just the same way viral, uh, viral DNA can get right incorporated into, uh, in, into the cell that they infect. The same thing ha seems to happen. And we have some recent evidence that uh, a paper that we're working on that actually talks about that. Um, so it seems like this still happens. It's not just this evolutionary thing. Mitochondria mm. shipped genes, um, and they, so they shipped a number. You know, the majority of their genome. And there's a lot of people that are thinking about why is there still DNA in the mitochondria? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't they ship the whole thing, right? Yeah. Uh, so there must be some some evolutionary advantage to having some genes that stay in this small genome, and of which you have hundreds of copies or thousands of copies in a cell. Yeah. Um... I don't want to get too far into the weeds on this piece, but do they have their own replication machinery? Do they actually replicate that DNA in mm -hmm. the mitochondrial genome? Yep. Yeah, yeah. So they, they have the whole machinery to replicate the genome, mitochondrial DNA replication, mitochondrial DNA transcription, of course, right? So they can make RNA out of their DNA and then the whole mitochondrial DNA translation machinery. So there's the ribosomes that make proteins inside the mitochondria or different ribosomes that make protein in the cytoplasm. So, and, you know, there are drugs and side effects for, for certain drugs, antibiotics, right, that are meant to destroy and prevent bacteria from making proteins actually have side effects because they they, they, ah. they target the bacterial like <laughs> I see. mitochondrial translation or transcription machinery. I see. So like antibiotics can be, I mean, obviously they can be beneficial and, and they have been hu hugely beneficial to help fight certain types of disease. But we often talk about a side effect of antibiotics being like, you know, killing your microbiome or uh, facilitating the evolution of drug-resistant bacteria, but you're saying independent of all of that, they would still actually have some side effects on our own mitochondria. So mitochondria are still bacteria-like enough yeah. that they, <laughs> they can be hit in similar ways uh, as the bacteria in your gut, for example. Um, so Interesting. You know, there, there are differences and, um, you know, there's yeah, a lot of evolutionary kind of divergences that have happened between the mitochondrial transcription, translation, replication machinery, and like uh, still kind of extra <laughs> outside the cell uh, bacteria. Um, you know, prokaryotes, but uh, there, there are, there's enough similarities that some of the stuff we've designed and that, you know, fungi and the, the life has designed to kind of eliminate or target bacteria, it can target mitochondria. Interesting. Um, there's lots of interesting stuff that we're going to talk about that we're sort of building up, but I want to spend a little bit more time just talking about the core functions uh, that are associated with mitochondria. So we've discussed one. Another, I would like you to just describe like what else do they do that they're less famous for that you don't, you know, like in high school biology, I learned about the, the ATP synthesis side of mitochondria, but we didn't really learn about anything else. Mm -hmm. So what are some of these other core functions and how does that start to tie into um, the, uh, the active rather than passive nature of mitochondria? That's a, yes. So there's. I think one thing that comes to mind that I can't, you know, ignore now is, uh, you know, some people probably know of the old analogy of mitochondria, 
right? The, that's the, the popular, you know, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. The powerhouse of the cell. <laughs> I think this is so. This was first written about. Like this term comes from a Scientific American uh, paper from the nineteen seventies, uh, and that you know came after the work of Britton Chance and other uh, that uh, have you know established the processes and the regulatory control, you know, mechanisms for ATP production and how ADP drives, right, respiration, all of this. And then uh, also from the work of Peter Mitchell, uh, who won a Nobel Prize for figuring out the chemiosmotic, uh, you know, theory of, of um, for oxidative phosphorylation and ATP synthesis through consuming oxygen. So at that time, you know, pretty much the only thing that people knew mitochondria did was to make ATP, so the the powerhouse of the, ho- the power cell, the powerhouse of the cell analogy seemed well justified and appropriate. Now, <laughs> I think this analogy is, has been damaging in the past, you know, couple decades because mm. we know so much more about mitochondria and um, analogies are really powerful, right? Because and that's the reason we use them because they tap into this knowledge basis, right? That most humans share. So if you can uh, use an analogy or a metaphor to convey a complex you know, concept, then right away the person gets it, right? And, um, but not only does, you know, someone get it, uh, but then it, uh, the analogy kind of limits the spectrum, right? The degrees of freedom that your mind can go into. Mm. So if you say it's a powerhouse, well, what does a powerhouse do, right? It makes power or transforms, you know, uh, energy from one form to the other. Uh, and, and that's it right? It, what mitochondria do is amazing. You look at them under a microscope and you see them move around and they actually, you know, sense each other and they can fuse with each other. So you have two mitochondria, they can oh, wow. come and then boom, they fuse and they become, you know, one longer, bigger mitochondria. And so hmm. two became one. Uh, they have a life cycle, right? So if you think about how might, how do mitochondria reproduce? And so they actually age. And then at some point, hmm. uh, you know, the, the longer like spaghetti-like mitochondria, they're not all beans and and uh, <laughs> um, and peanuts, uh, unlike, you know, what the textbook shows you. So they have this beautiful morph- morphological complexity. And then they can undergo what's called fission, right? So they can fuse with each other. So two can become one. And then you can have really long tubules of mitochondria that ar- arises from the fusion of multiple small ones. But then these, small, these long ones can also fragment or undergo fission. And then the, the little fizzed mitochondria either will survive and refuse with another one or that can be the end of its life, right? So if it's not uh, energized enough, if it cannot sustain the membrane potential, right? So do all of the carbon oxygen ripping off electrons, pumping protons, maintaining membrane potential, if it's not able to do this anymore, then uh, it, it will not reintegrate the dynamic network, uh, you know, uh, of mitochondria that is in the cytoplasm and then it will be degraded. Cells have processes called autophagy, right? Autophagy. So the self-eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then th- when that's applied to mitochondria, it's called mitophagy. So the, the cell will eat its own mitochondria that are, you know, no longer useful. Um, so that's, mitochondria have this life cycle, right? They fuse, they, they fizz, they, the new ones are born out of, you know, existing ones that grow, 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 and then boom, they separate and now you have a new one. Um, and they interact with each other. They produce signals, uh, like reactive oxygen species, mm. right? We know, everyone knows about oxidative stress. Uh, oxidative stress comes from the production of reactive oxygen species. So oxygen that acquires an, ox- an extra electron and then it wants to give it to something, then it becomes a reactive oxygen species. So it's kind of <laughs> on the lookout for 
a recipient for this extra electron, uh, mitochondria can produce a lot of those uh, because you know, oxygen's right there and they're flowing electrons kind of freely in the electron transport chain. So there's a lot of potential for electron to fly out, react with an oxygen. It's like acid or something leaking out of a battery and yes. chewing things up. Yeah, that's and that's where antioxidants come in? Exactly. Uh, so antioxidants are, are meant to buffer those reactive uh, oxygen molecules that kind of don't know what to do with their extra electron. <laughs> mm. And when... Um, yeah, there are different conditions when mitochondria can produce a lot of reactive oxygen species. Um, so that's you know one thing that they do as a function. And uh, the reactive oxygen species are not just bad stuff. And if there's a lot of it, it can cause oxidative stress, right? And that's why um, the theory, that's the theory behind consuming antioxidants, right? And why that, that's useful. Um, but the reactive oxygen species are actually very important signaling molecule. Right? We just talked about one way that mitochondria talk to the nucleus. They can ship genes there and then change the nuclear genome. They also produce reactive oxygen species that can diffuse, change their redox potential. Right, So if there's reactive oxygen species, you can damage something, but you can also uh, use their reactive oxygen species and kind of the their electrochemical environment or state to, to convey information. To convey information, yeah. yeah. So then information can be conveyed between the mitochondria and the nucleus Sure, by shipping pieces of DNA that might not happen kind of on a second by second basis. <laughs> Maybe every like few months or years, there's like pieces of DNA that are transferred, integrated in the in the genome. Uh, but the reactive oxygen species communication, you know, probably happens every millisecond, right, in in every cell of of the body. And there's also uh, other forms of mitonuclear communication that happens via the production of reactive metabolites. And we could talk about the epigenome. Right, the the layer of information that sits on top of genes that can turn on or turn off certain genes. Uh, so that's a whole area of biology that mitochondria play a very critical role in, and that's probably uh, an important way in which the nucleus and the the rest of the cell became uh, good neighbors, right, and good roommates. <laughs> the mitochondria and the nucleus became good roommates because they learned to speak the same language, um, and that involves like the epigenome and the 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 um, metabolic uh, intermediates that mitochondria can produce and reactive oxygen species. So there are all of these things that mitochondria can generate and produce as signals of communication. Uh, so communicating, you could lump as a big function, mm -hmm. coming back to your question, right? I mean, are there, um, so when you disrupt any of these mechanisms of communi intracellular communication between the mitochondria and other mitochondria or the or the nucleus or just other components in, in the cellular milieu, um, what happens? Like mm -hmm. I, I imagine experiments have been done where you somehow do a loss of function, you disrupt some, some signal the mitochondria produces. What are the negative consequences of that that start to tell us what's, what's going on there and what that communication yes, is for? Yes, exactly, and what was important, right? Um, so definitely experiments have been done. You can target things to mitochondria and then you can block a process or you can like activate uh, a, a certain process and then ask, well, what does this do, right? And to the cell uh, and what's the normal state, what's the normal role of communication between the mitochondria and the nucleus? Uh, so we did an experiment like this and others have done variations of this kind of experiment before uh, where we took cells that were all derived from the same clone. So that's an experiment where uh, you take a, a special kind of cancer-derived cell that has the same genome so you can make clones of it, right? So that's kind of the, the ideal <laughs> experiment in, you know, in, in the biology where you have eight monozygotic identical twins, 
right? It's, it's a slightly different experiment because you took a cell and then you just produce different clones. And then what you can do is play a little trick with the mitochondria. Uh, if this cell comes from someone who had a mixture of normal, kind of wild type, the of mitochondrial DNA molecule, mm-hmm. uh, and then this, some people have mitochondrial DNA mutations, right? And then that causes mitochondrial disease. And that's a whole area we could talk about uh, if that's of interest. So if you take someone that has some of those mitochondrial DNA mutations, uh, what you find is that in one cell, let's say there's 500 copies of mitochondrial DNA. Well, out of the 500, there could be, let's say, 400 that are normal and then 100 that has the mutation, right? So that gives you 20% uh, mutant mitochondrial DNA and then 80% normal or wild-type mitochondrial DNA. So that's a normal state called heteroplasmy. Heteroplasmy is this mixture of two different kinds or more different, more kinds of, of mitochondrial DNA in the same cell. So that's what, if you take, you know, a piece of muscle or a piece of skin from someone with mitochondrial disease, you'll find this heteroplasmy almost all, all the time. I see. Um, so what we did in that experiment, uh, when I was a postdoc in Doug Wallace's lab, uh, you know, we had the chance to work with these cells that had to start with like 60% heteroplasmy. And then someone took those cells and made different clones with the same, they're all derived from the same cell, right? So theoretically they have the same nucleus, but they have different levels of heteroplasmy. So uh, one of those cells had 0% heteroplasmy, right? Mm -hmm. So only normal mitochondria. And then one of those cells had 100% heteroplasmy. So all the mitochondria are mutant. So those mitochondria and those cells cannot consume oxygen, Mm. right? So they cannot make ATP, and they cannot build a membrane potential um, w- w- in, inside of their mitochondria because if you don't have the mitochondrial DNA, you don't have those 13 important genes. Those 13 genes are uh, components of the electron transport chain that carries the electrons, pump protons, charges the battery, right? So those cells with 100% mutant mitochondrial DNA don't have the ability to transform energy in, in the mitochondria. They still have mitochondria, and uh, the cells can survive if you provide them everything they need. <laughs> I see. So you have to constantly just give them the right stuff. Yes. You'd have to supplement them to, you know, they're, they're handicapped in a way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if they are of cancerous nature, so they've reverted back to their ancestral, you know, prokaryote <laughs> self, uh, then they can kind of live without, you know, mitochondrial energy production. Mm. But they need mitochondria for other things, right? There's other things that we can talk about more. And then you have... In the same system, cells with no mitochondrial DNA, cells, uh, sorry, cells with all normal mitochondria, right? Cells with all mutant mitochondria that cannot make ATP. And then you have in between, Mm -hmm. clones in between, one with 20, 30, 40, uh, 50, and then 90% heteroplasmy. So you have a graded kind of system Mm -hmm. with increasing uh, mutation load and increasing degree of oxidative phosphorylation uh, defect, right, or deficiency. And then in this experiment, there's also a weird cell with no mitochondrial DNA. So no mutant, no normal, which is kind of a, a trick you can play again in cancer cells if you supplement uh, cells with, you know, the right things. I see. Uh, and then in that experiment, you can ask, okay, like here you have a system, you change one thing, which is the proportion of normal and mutant mitochondrial DNA. You change heteroplasmy. What does that do, yeah. right? What effect does that have on and then depending what your inclination is, you can you know, ask whatever question you're interested in. And in this case, we use RNA sequencing. So you can look at all of the RNA molecules that the cells are making 
uh, which tells you which gene is on and then which gene is off and how much is each gene expressed, right? Is expressed a lot or not a lot. And just with RNA sequencing, with the profile of gene expression, you can tell if you're looking at a neuron or a liver, a liver cell mm -hmm. or like a heart cell or a skin cell, right? So there's enough information in what's called the transcriptome and the transcript are the RNA molecules that are made from the DNA. Just looking at the transcriptome, you can tell like what's the cell up to, right? Yeah. What is it trying to do? And uh, what's, uh, yeah, what is it attempting to do? I think that's the best way to look at the transcriptome. So we ask, what is the transcriptome, right? Of the same cell line, all of those clones, uh, but with increasing levels of mitochondrial oxidative phosphorylation defect. And what we found was that 67% of all of the 25,000 genes in the nucleus were either up or down in response to this graded, you know, mitochondrial def defect. So the first observation is just a lot changes. Yes, the majority of the genome, the majority of the human genome seems to be under mitochondrial control. And it's presumably not all just energy homeostasis stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and those, you know, I mean, two thirds of the genome that covers probably like everything. But what we found like most dramatically different were like uh, communication proteins, like proteins that allow cells to talk to each other, like anchoring proteins and um, all sorts of proteins related to growth, right? And the, the cells, we looked at all sorts of things, <laughs> you know, to characterize those cells with increasing levels of, of mitochondrial DNA mutation and oxidative phosphorylation defects and the size of those cell changed, right? We did mm. electron microscopy to look at what do the mitochondria look like if they have 20%, 30%, 50% and so on. The mitochondria look different, right? The nucleus even, you know, could shrink and, and expand based on the, the heteroplasmy and the, um, and the mutation load. So just changing the mitochondria is sufficient, right? To change the expression of a really large chunk of the genes in the, in the, in the nuclear genome. Uh, so those kind of experiments, I think, are, are really powerful in illustrating how much control mitochondria can have on on the on gene expression, right? And gene expression, I think, many of your viewers are going to know is what drives cellular identity and you know cellular decisions, right? Or how a cell goes from being a stem cell to differentiating into a heart cell or into a brain cell, a neuron, right? Or into a different kind of cell. Yeah. So. So for those that don't know, right, so every nuclear genome that we have in our bodies has the same set of genes and what makes the brain cell the brain cell and not the muscle cell is just which combination are turned on and off. Mitochondria apparently play an important role in deciding what that combination of on and off is. Can you talk a little bit more about how the mitochondria actually regulates gene expression in the nuclear genome? Yes, so there's a few um, a few different ways that people have mapped. Um, and that's a, an active area of, of research. So it, I don't think we've figured uh, most of it yet. And they're not, they never get into the nucleus, right? They're all always in the cytoplasm. There is uh, one old paper that I know of uh, that where they found mitochondria actually in the nucleus. And in those weird, you know, the cells with the, the mitochondrial defect, I think we might have seen some as well. <laughs> okay. So it's rare, but maybe it does happen maybe, sometimes. Maybe. Uh, and there's some reasons, you know, why that, that, that might happen and why that never happens or almost never happens. Uh, so one way uh, that I mentioned earlier was those reactive oxygen species, right? So there's some proteins uh, that are called transcription factors. And what their role is, is to go into the nucleus, bind a specific area of the genome, the, the, the beginning of a gene, it's called the promoter. And then when the transcription factors bind that region, it's basically a signal to say, yes, turn on this gene, right? And then there are other proteins that can come. Then the polymerase can come in attached kind of piggybacking on the transcription factor, and then it will start to 
move along the gene and then turn on the gene in a way and then make the RNA, the transcript, and then that eventually that makes a protein. So that transcription factor is, is plays a big role in determining whether a gene is turned on or turned off. And then you can ask, well, what makes a transcription factor go into the nucleus mm -hmm. and bind to that gene, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that trigger this movement, it's called the translocation of the transcription factor from the cytoplasm to the nucleus can be this redox status. So the mm. if you have a few reactive oxygen species, not too much that it's just damaging the hell out of everything, but enough to change the redox you know, status of a certain protein. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are little disulfide bonds and proteins that can kind of change slightly the shape. So if you have a transcription factor that you know looks like uh, an open donut, yeah, right? yeah. and then if there's a bit of uh, of, uh, of reactive oxygen species, the redox status change, it will close the donut, right? And now that you have a closed donut, this is, let's say for this protein, the perfect configuration, the perfect shape- To get in. To get in the nucleus, right? And then boom, to bind to a gene, a I promoter. See. And presumably what happens next is the cell is going to initiate protective mechanisms to deal with the oxidative stress or something like that. So that's a beautiful example that's been very well mapped. If there's too much reactive oxygen species, then you have not only those- transcription factors that are sensitive to slight redox potential, but transcription factors that are sensitive to oxidative stress, right? Then those go in the nucleus, turn on very specific genes mm -hmm. that have like the, the, the genetic sequence where those transcription factors can bind, those uh, oxidative stress responsive transcription factors. And then that turns on genes, not any gene, but those genes that encode for enzymes that can detoxify, right? Mm -hmm. That can play an antioxidant detox, role. Yes. Detox <laughs> genes. So yeah, so the, the mitochondria literally produce proteins that can get inside of the nucleus, switch genes on or switch them off. And the way that happens, at least in some cases, has to do with this, the level of, of reactive oxygen species that the, the cell and the mitochondria are sensing. One, they, they produce, they produce. Uh, you said produce proteins that can go into the nucleus. They produce signals like reactive oxygen species. I see, I see. Uh, okay. And other uh, metabolic intermediates. I see that, that affect can, transcription factors that were produced uh, elsewhere. Correct. I see. They might also produce proteins. That's a whole area of you know biology. It's very recent. Still, still <laughs> some question mark. Yeah, some small proteins that are kind of hidden in, in the mitochondrial genome that can be made and then travel to the nucleus I and see. then play a role there. And you know. With hundreds of millions of years of evolution behind it, the the response to the increase, the intrinsic response that's that's evolved to the increase in reactive oxygen species is presumably pretty damn good at doing its job. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is maybe a weird question that's just coming to me. When we talk about antioxidants, you know, ingesting uh, compounds in the diet that can um, that can presumably help with these reactive oxygen species, is is it a fact that antioxidants are doing what most people think they're doing, or is that a presumption? And I guess the, the related question there to the mechanism you were describing is, if you start, say, ingesting a lot of antioxidants and you sort of disrupt this sort of communication yes. between the mitochondria and the nucleus, could that actually have negative consequences because then the cell's own detox mechanisms don't come online? Yes, right on. Uh, and there's a few good studies that actually showed in clinical trials in people, let's give people a really high dose antioxidant and see what it does, right? And at baseline, uh, there's I think there's mixed evidence for what it does in different like disease states and so on. Uh, there was one really powerful paper published in PNAS uh, uh, 2014, I think, where the, the authors did an exercise tr um, 
training program, right? So they evaluate the effect of exercise training on mitochondrial biogenesis. And some people, uh, you know, will... Uh, may know that if you exercise, right, what you ask of your body is to transform more energy. And that's why when you move, you go up the flight of stairs or you, you know, train for a marathon. Anytime you run or you bike or you, you swim or whatever you do, you breathe harder, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason you breathe harder is because you need to bring more oxygen into your, your lungs. And the reason you need to bring more oxygen into your lungs is because your blood is more depleted of oxygen. And the reason the blood is depleted is because the oxygen is being pulled and consumed by the mitochondria to charge their membrane potential, right? So the whole... Uh, being out of breath and your heart speeding up when you exercise is because your mitochondria need oxygen, right? So you you breathe harder to, to feed your mitochondria. Um, so what happens during exercise acutely, right? Within seconds and, and minutes, you, you breathe harder and, and your heart accelerates and so on. Uh, but what happens inside the muscles, let's say that you're using for exercising is that those muscles say, whoa, a lot of energy is being required to do this thing that we're doing, like running or, uh, or b- biking. Um, so in order to prepare for, you know, the next time you do this, uh, what cells do is that they make more mitochondria. And there's a whole communication there, right? Like the cell perceives there's not enough energy. Mitochondria produce signals that go to the nucleus and say, we're insufficient here. Like <laughs> there's not enough of us to to provide, you know, the energy that's necessary. So there's a whole number of signals that converge onto the nucleus. And then the nucleus turns on a, a genetic program uh, that uh, basically drives mitochondrial biogenesis. So the genesis of new mitochondria. And then one cell can go from having, let's say, 500 copies of mitochondrial DNA to, let's say, 800 or 1,000, right? You can double the number of mitochondrial DNA copies in your muscles, let's say, and also the mass of the mitochondria in the muscle by doing exercise. So if you go from being couch potato to training for a marathon, you can double how many mitochondria your cells have. Uh, And then what that does is that it, it improves the ability of that cell would double the number of mitochondria to transform a lot more energy. So you can make a lot more ATP and therefore consume more, uh, much more oxygen. Um, so that's the that's a normal adaptation, right, to exercise. In that study, what they did, going back to your antioxidant question, in that study, they said, okay, we'll have people do this exercise training program. I forget how many weeks it was, but mm-hmm. something like eight weeks, typically four to eight weeks. You have people train really hard for three or four days a week. Uh, and that is sufficient to increase mitochondrial biogenesis and to mm-hmm. improve fitness. So you can measure how much oxygen the whole body can consume. Mm-hmm. And is this, is this endurance training, weight training? Or endurance. It, it happens either way? Yeah, the exercise that makes you breathe really hard so the endurance okay. training yeah, yeah. <laughs> treadmill or bicycle or rowing or swimming and these kind of exercises um, and then what they did was to take a piece of muscle a muscle biopsy uh, before the training after the training and then they asked what are the training induced exercise adaptations and the healthy adaptation is that you make more mitochondria right and you increase the oxidative capacity of the working tissue uh, so that's healthy. That is kind of a, a necessary survival <laughs> adaptation to, to doing more exercise. Uh, if you feed people really high dose antioxidant in this study, I think it was vitamin E, you completely blunt this. And that kind of actually makes sense given what you've, you've told us so far. It makes sense if one of the signals, right, for the cell to, to know, like, I need to make more mitochondria is uh, this oxidative stress signaling or this yeah, yeah. reactive oxygen species. And it seems like it is. <laughs> so you can blunt mitochondrial biogenesis, training-induced uh, or exercise-induced training uh, biogenesis 
uh, with antioxidants. So that tells us that probably this uh, reactive oxygen species signaling just plays a normal role in, in physiology. Yeah, and I guess this can become pretty intuitive and commonsensical when you just think about so many different things in life. You know, stress, you don't want stress to be extreme and to be life-threatening, but you don't also want, you don't want it to be absent either. Yeah. You actually need those signals to grow and, and learn and, and do the things that we do in life. And apparently this is true at the, the subcellular <laughs> level. Yes. Yeah, those yeah. kind of things, you know, you're tapping into um, a, uh, a concept, right? That, or a principle uh, that is true kind of at the level of human psychology, mm -hmm. right? There's this concept thing that's what you're referring to if there's you know a bit of stimulation a bit of stress then you can reach optimal performance and if there's too much stress then you crash mm -hmm. uh, and that's true of uh like athletic performance but also of like test you know uh yeah 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 <laughs> uh, and so it's true at that level that it's also true at the level of physiology and it's also true at the level of you know subcellular communication so i think that increases the likelihood that you're you know tapping into a principle a conserved principle across level of biological organization that is true you know too little stress is is not good the mm -hmm. organism you know can't be at its best but too much can be damaging yeah so like when you think about things like diet you know one core principle i guess that i always come back to and i'm not like a diet expert but everyone needs to know enough about diet to to be healthy is, you know, you don't want to have a deficit of anything, but that does not mean that you just want to consume as much of, as possible of all of these quote unquote good, good compounds. You know, you can't just consume, you can, you can overdose on and have too much of a good thing in essence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And either that good thing in, in excess becomes toxic. Mm -hmm. I think that's one way in which the system can you know, not benefit or suffer from excess of a good thing, uh, or by supplementing the organism with too much of a good thing, you you might end up suppressing the natural, like, the endogenous pathway mm -hmm. in your body that mm -hmm. makes that good thing, right? And if you suppress that, then if you ever stop taking the supplement, now this pathway has been turned off, let's say for years, right? If you're on this supplement, now the body develops kind of a dependency, on mm. on exogenous source as opposed to kind of having the natural you know balance of of processes that uh produce most of what we need in mm -hmm. you know in addition in addition to good uh you know healthy balanced diets for for all of the minerals cofactors so there's a lot of things that the body can make and then we also you know eat some and if you don't eat you know very much of this the body can crank up the production if you eat a ton you'll shut off you know this production so there there are these two sources of potential you know imbalances that you can produce probably by over consuming certain things so you you answered already one of the other questions i was going to ask which is you know when you think about fitness and exercise and, and building muscle or building endurance what happens in the mitochondria well you've told us you literally make more of them and that makes perfect sense um I would also expect that there's definitely going to be some important role for mitochondria to play in states of deprivation. Mm -hmm. So when people are in, say, fasted states um, and they're not eating for days or weeks at a time, they go into ketosis and things like that. What's going on with the mitochondria when our um, when our diet changes mm -hmm. and the way that we're uh, transforming energy or the source of, of like the raw materials actually changes. Are they, are they switching the way that they're generating ATP mm -hmm. or anything like that? So they're switching. So I'm not an expert in, you know, diet interve dietary interventions and um, 
an, an you know that area of, of of the science but what's clear if you don't eat too much <laughs> for let's say if you eat a lot of sugar right then cells can choose you know to some extent right to you know, there are two main pathways for transforming energy you can flow carbons you know from glucose down um uh, glycolysis and then that the end product of pyruvate either you can enter mitochondria and then you do oxidative phosphorylation and do this thing of carbon oxygen separation and producing membrane potential and so on you can also um, decide to flow the pyruvate into lactate and so that can all of this can happen without oxygen right this is kind of the ancestral anaerobic way of transforming energy uh, which yields you know, less ATP molecules per molecule of glucose. Uh, and then in the beautiful organisms, you know, that have multiple different kinds of organs like us, this lactate then will go into the bloodstream and then the lactate can go into the liver and then the liver can take the lactate, bring it back into glucose and then the glucose, boom, is shot back into the, the, the blood and then the glucose comes back, let's say, to the muscle and then this can happen again. That's called the Cori cycle. Um, so you, to, to some extent, right, you, you could live on a very high carb you know diet uh and that is probably the least the you put your organism then in the condition that is the least stimulating for your mitochondria because mm. then mitochondria end up playing you know kind of a secondary role uh where some tissues can can feed not all tissues but some tissues you know can feed without engaging too much their their mitochondria there's some tissues like the brain for example right uh, that um need uh they cannot burn other things in glucose. Mm. Um, but the majority of other tissues have this flexibility. They can choose kind of what they eat. And there's some things that cells will eat, consume uh, for energy that require absolutely mitochondria. So for example, lipids, right? If you're going to burn fat, uh, you cannot do this through glycolysis because the, the only substrate that can be you know, burned through glycolysis or, you know, transformed is the entry point is glucose. Um, but if you come in with a fatty acid, then the fatty acid needs to be chopped. All of this, this happens through another pathway called beta oxidation. And there's several of the enzymes of beta oxidation that are in the mitochondria. And, and then what you, when you do beta oxidation, the path from chopping and burning lipids to making ATP is mitochondria dependent, right? And then you need to rip off the electrons, flow them, charge your battery, and then use that potential to make ATP. Um, same thing with ketones, right? And and um, so then if you go on a no sugar, like a ketogenic diet, right? And I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with this, where mm -hmm. you you eliminate all of the sugars from, from your diet. Uh, then you end up burning almost exclusively fat and proteins. And when you burn fat and proteins, there's no way you can do this without your mitochondria. Mm. So if you take a little mitocentric approach <laughs> and you say, what diet is going to be most stimulating to the mitochondria, right? And th so that would be eating, you know, fats and, and proteins. So if you were, um, if you were doing, let's, I, I know people who have done or do ketogenic diet for weight loss, fat burning reasons. Based on what you were saying earlier about the ability of cells to increase mitochondria in response to endurance training, mm -hmm. would you actually lose, would you burn fat faster if you went on the ketogenic diet after you were already doing endurance training because your cells would have more of them to do that? If you continue the endurance training, I would say probably yes, right? If you continue to, to exercise more, um, probably, you know, cells are really... Uh, quick to adapt in the most beautiful way, right? Like they don't, 
they don't hold on to things that they don't need. Mm. Um, unlike humans. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get attached to their mitochondria. So if a cell makes a lot of mitochondria because you're running, right? Let's say uh, an hour every day, then you need more mitochondria. But if you stop running an hour every day, then the cells of your legs, you know, of your muscle cells are going to get rid of those extra mitochondria. Um, so I think probably if you have a bigger pool of well-functioning, healthy mitochondria, you're in a better position to um, to adapt and maybe to burn fats you know, more efficiently. Um, and I think the same thing happens if not, not only you change your diet, but you change when you eat, right? Like uh, time-restricted feeding is mm. something that um, some people have tried. I tried that once and I thought it was, it was very cool. I have a good friend who tried that recently and who's, she's... Um, you know, in her fifties, and she said it, it pretty much changed her life, hmm. and she has so much more energy now <laughs> that she does time restricted feeding, which is basically you don't feed the whole time you're awake. You choose a certain period of your awake time, and then you only eat then. Mm-hmm. So when you wake up in the morning, you don't eat, and you don't eat until like two p.m. Yeah, and then you eat only between two and six p.m. or right some window of time, six hours, I think, is typically what what people do. Uh, so if you're allowed to eat only for those six hours, then there's you know an abundance of food substrates that come in. You can use them, but then there's a very big chunk of time, like eighteen hours, the rest of the day where you're not eating. And then the body needs to switch into that mode of, I need to depend on my mitochondria for energy. Mm. Uh, I can't rely on, you know, the rapid influx of sugars that, you know, you'd be having if you ate, you know, three plus uh, meals, you know, with snacks uh, in the day. So this intermittent fasting or this time restricted feeding regime, uh, in a way, I think is, is, um, and is a way of stimulating it works out your mitochondria in a sense exactly yeah yeah. (laughs) or it gives them purpose right (laughs) i think if if you're only uh feeding on on you know refined sugars then mitochondrial the purpose if you think about mitochondria as (laughs) little social creatures uh that need to be around for to serve a purpose in the organism um then they, they kind of lose that a little bit yeah um i don't know if i want to get into this or maybe we'll circle back to it later but just as an anecdote to share like i've done some amount of like fasting and time restricted feeding and for me at least anecdotally like if i don't eat for 24 hours straight um i mean i go through i go through the waxing and waning of hunger as you would expect and in the beginning like yeah i'm really hungry for a while and maybe i'm irritable and but then it kind of goes away and that cycles a couple times but after I get towards the end of it, maybe two thirds or three quarters of the way through that 24 hour period, it, there's a, an actual psychoactive effect. I feel more awake and focused and there's there's kind of a, a mild euphoria. And I don't know what the basis of that is, but there is some kind of metabolic change that you actually feel. And then I, that you would think, right, when you get to the second half of the 24 hour fast, you're gonna be hungrier because you've gone longer with food. But once I get towards the end, it was actually the opposite for me. I sort of just lost lost track of the feeling of hunger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this can probably be explained physiologically as you know the first phase you're going through withdrawal. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have cells that that are you know a bit in panic mode in, in the body because they, they're maybe not equipped or like they weren't expecting that to happen, right? Uh, and then the hunger is like, whoa, so we're away from the set point, which is like mm. how much, how many calories we need to be taken, taken in. So the hunger is almost like a little emergency signal. Uh, but the hunger that we experience subjectively is coupled with 
you know, hormonal neuroendocrine signals that are then, you know, being released. Um, and then once those signals are released, that triggers adaptation. So now you have some transcription factors, right, that detect the fact that there's not enough energy that go to the nucleus, they turn on some genes and you have some new proteins that come in, let's say for the Cori cycle, right? So you can take something, turn it back into glucose. Um, so after several hours, now you have these systems that are, you know, more adapted. And now you can start to actually feel good again uh, because the, the system is, you know, in, in, a, in a more stable uh, place and you're not kind of in an emergency mode. I think being hungry once in a while is a really healthy thing that that maybe we we lose a bit when your fridge is plentiful and when we have you know psychological drivers and social drivers uh, and addiction you know to to food and uh, and to plentifulness. Yeah, and I mean the ancestral state was uh, was a state of higher food uncertainty certainly for most of our evolutionary history. So in my mind, it would have to be true that the body is in some sense adapted to not having constant, consistent food availability. Yes, yeah, yeah definitely. And then the, the body comes, you know, the, the studies that have been done, it's really hard when you start time-restricted feeding. Mm -hmm. Like if you're used to having breakfast, a lunch, and a dinner, and you start to ski, <laughs> you yeah. don't do breakfast, you don't, and you do that a first late day. lunch. That first day is really rough. The second day is also rough, the third and the fourth. And then after that, you know, you get into a rhythm and people then don't report terrible hunger in the morning. Yeah. And they look forward to eating, right? And then it becomes a real a real joy. <laughs> when you haven't eaten in 18 hours and, yeah. and then you, you have a, a meal, it's, it like feels really good. So yes, there's a psychological component to this. Um, and then once the body is in, in this new adapted state, which potentially was the state we were in like 10, 20,000 years ago, where you don't eat for a large chunk of time and then boom, right? You eat uh, or for several days maybe. Um, so there's a few reasons to think like this is probably a more... Um, adapted behavior right time restricted feeding or um um yeah that kind of behavior that to our history or mm -hmm. evolutionary history i want to zoom back in and talk about um the health of the mitochondria themselves so you sort of maybe hinted at this earlier you said the mitochondria age there's old ones and young ones presumably that means i would guess that the old ones don't quite behave as well as the young ones um i'm interested in exploring that a little bit more i know that you've your lab and others have worked with something called the mitochondrial health index so how is that actually measured and what does it map to what is an unhealthy mitochondria doing compared to a healthy one yes you know health is a really complex problem. So we, <laughs> we came up with this mitochondrial health index, this MHI, uh, as a simplified way to quantify energy production capacity. So if you look at a mitochondrion, right, if you could do such a thing and ask how much energy can this one produce, right? Um, that's how we defined, that's how we operationalized energy uh, mitochondrial health as the ability, you know, to flow electrons through the electron transport chain. So what we did was to basically take approaches that um, were developed, you know, back in the days to measure um, energy production capacity in the electron transport chain, right? There's, I spoke about complex five earlier, the ATP synthase. There's complexes one, two, three, four, where the electrons initially come in through complexes one and two, and then flow to three and then four. Then at complex four, this is where oxygen comes in. So you can measure the activity, the capacity of those complexes um, biochemically in the lab, right? And, and then once 
you quantify this, you can say, ah, you know, if you take a certain number of, of cells or, or mitochondria, and then you quantify how much activity is there, let's say in these 5 million cells, how much activity is there of complex one or complex four? Um, then that gives you a, a proxy, right? It's a, an indirect measure of energy production capacity uh, by quantifying the, the abundance of those of those enzymes and the, the, the functional capacity of those enzymes. Then if you take the capacity to transfer electrons and the electron transport chain as those enzymes, and then you divide this in a simple uh, equation, you divide this by how many mitochondria you you started with, right? Mm -hmm. So you said you, you had 5 million cells, but let's say you had like 100 units of, of mitochondria and you quantified you know 200 units of electron transport chain capacity so you have 200 divided by 100 gives, this gives you a mitochondrial health index or an mhi of two right uh let's say you have another person mm -hmm. that you also take five million cells and then you count the mitochondria there's also 100 units of mitochondria but then this person if you uh, measure the activity of those enzymes, there's not 200 units, there's like 400 units. Yeah, they're getting more bang for their buck. Yeah, so yeah. each mito now can transform more energy, right? So uh, now the MHI goes from two to four. Uh, and then you can have, you know, reverse situation where you have someone also uh, with 200 units of energy production capacity, like our first person, but this person to reach, to achieve 200 units needs not 100, but they need 200 units of content. So now it's 200 divided by 200. Now your health index is of one, mm -hmm. right? So now you have a person, like the first person had an MHI of two. Now the second person with the same amount of mitochondria, but more capacity had MHI of four. And then the third person with uh, more mitochondria, but less capacity per has an MHI of, of one. So, so that's simple mitochondrial health index was an attempt at quantifying energy production capacity. So we could, you know, measure this in different people and ask, do people have different kinds of mitochondria, different energy mm. production capacity, uh, you know, to explore hypothesis about what makes people different. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be true, right? There must be, it is. I, there's a lot of variance, <laughs> I would imagine. It is. Yes. There's a lot of variance. Uh Yes, not all mitochondria are created equal, you know, within the body. And that's something we're actively thinking about now. Um, but also mitochondria in different people, right? And in, in the immune cells, that which is what we looked into or in the muscle. And people have very different amounts of mitochondria. And then the, the function, the, the proteins that are in the mitochondria are different, um, different abundance. So yeah, there, there's large inter-individual differences. And there's also over time, that's something that's much less well-established, but like the exercise studies that, you know, we were talking about earlier, if you have someone exercise for eight weeks, you, you train for like a half marathon, or you just decide now to be physically active and uh, go from being completely sedentary, you will, you will make more mitochondria and the quality of the mitochondria is going to change also a little bit. Um, so we know there's plasticity within a person. And something we're interested to explore in the lab is how, you know, sure, physical activity in increases mitochondrial content through biogenesis and other things. So physical interventions that make you breathe harder changes in mitochondria, right? Do, do psychological states and, you know, the, the, the things that we experience, does that actually manifest in our mitochondria is a question that is much less understood. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that that's an area where, where there's a lot of open questions, but, you know, just at, at like a very high level, when you start thinking about the brain, well, A, like, 
when you think about mitochondria, you think about energy. That's not all they do as, as we're learning. But when you think about energy, like at least me, you think about muscle cells. So it's like the muscles probably have a lot of mitochondria because they're very expensive. But then neurons are the same in that sense. They're very expensive. They require, they require a lot of uh, energy to do what they do. And so can you start talking a little bit about the the mind mitochondria connection mm -hmm. um like you know there's so many places to go with this they're metabolically expensive neurons are um so they presumably need a lot of mitochondria they don't divide like other cells and i wonder how that influences how they like regulate their own mitochondrial cycling so what what would you say is a good place to start when we think about what mitochondria are doing in the brain and for the brain mm -hmm. so at a very high level you're right the brain is really expensive um and you know, the best estimates is that uh, in general, on a, in a normal human body, the brain is about 2% of the body weight, but it consumes something like 20% of uh, energy of the whole organism. So the cost per, per gram of tissue is quite a, quite a lot in, in the human brain. Uh, and we've been doing work comparing mitochondrial content and mitochondrial qualities, or what we call mitotypes. So there are different cell types yeah, in yeah, the body. Yeah. So there are, different, there are different mitochondrial types or mitotypes in, in different parts of the body, different mm. organs, different cell types. And uh, the brain, the human brain uh, has a lot of mitochondria. If you rank all of the tissues, there's a beautiful uh, database of 55 different tissues in the human body, right? From um, autopsies. And then you do gene expression. You do RNA sequencing. What we talked about, you look at the transcriptome. What we were talking about earlier, you look at the proteome. You do proteomics then you can start to ask, well, how many of those mitochondrial proteins are there? How many mitochondria are there in the brain, right? And in different parts of the brain, the brain is like beautifully complex. And um, and then versus the heart, versus the liver, versus the muscle, versus the kidneys, then the, the placenta, the testes, the gonad. So the mitochondria are very different in all of those hmm. tissues. And the amount of mitochondria is substantially higher in the brain than in the majority of the other tissues. So the brain is among the tissues that have the highest mitochondrial content per per unit of mass. Uh, and it consumes energy very high, but also very constant. The muscle, mm. in contrast, can consume a ton of energy and then stop. And, and then, then start, stop. And then yes, stop. exactly. You sleep for you know several hours. The mm -hmm. muscles barely contract for for many hours at a time. The brain never stops. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. Even when you're not thinking, <laughs> you know the brain is always going. Um, so th there's kind of a very continuous, steady state energy requirement uh, that the brain needs that other tissues, uh, you know, not all, don't all need. Um, and mitochondria kind of optimize for this kind of steady you know, high level energy production, the, the oxidative phosphorylation system is really good at this. I see. I see. Um, I mean, how I imagine there's, you know, how dynamic are the mitochondria in, in neurons at, at a, at a short time scale? Like when you think about the scale of action potentials, like mm -hmm. the actual signals that the brain sends, you're talking about milliseconds, tens of milliseconds, like how, you know, things have to happen in terms of like ion flux into and out of these neurons to, to allow that to happen. That consumes a lot of ATP at very particular sort of mm -hmm. points on that timeline. How dynamic are the mitochondria inside of a single neuron? Yes, that's a great question. Time scales <laughs> and action potentials are like millisecond, you know, uh, level. Uh, mitochondria can turn on right within um, 
seconds, right? To less than seconds. Like if you do uh, cool experiments you can do in the lab is you isolate mitochondria, let's say from neurons, mm -hmm. right? And you put them into a little chamber. And then in the chamber, there's a little sensor for oxygen, right? Yeah. A, a little electrode. And then it tells you how much oxygen is in the chamber. Then you add your mitochondria and then the mitochondria start to consume a bit of, a bit of oxygen. And you see this, you know, going down. Uh, then you add ADP, mm -hmm. right? If you add ADP, like we talked about earlier, ADP is going to come inside mitochondria. Mitochondria sense this. Then mm -hmm. the turbine starts to spin really quickly. You dissipate the membrane potential, right? It all goes through the, the turbine. Then you start to make ATP from the ADP that's coming in. And then if you relieve the pressure from the dam, right? From the, the transmembrane potential, now the electrons start to flow like crazy and that, that starts to consume oxygen. So on the little trace, you see oxygen start to drop really quickly. This happens very quickly. You add the ATP, you look at the trace, and choop, right right away it's, it starts to uh, to be consumed. So uh, second, you know, uh, sub-second maybe, the, you get mitochondria to, to react very quickly, but not like millisecond. And the membrane potential will, you know, drop and then reestablish and uh, with very fast kinetics, the kinetics for ATP, you know, production uh, would be much lower in oxygen consumption. Um, and you kind of see this in uh, what's called fMRI, functional uh, magnetic resonance mm -hmm. imaging of the brain, uh, where you see, you know, I think probably everyone has seen a picture, like black and white image of the brain, and then they're like blobs of colors, mm -hmm. right? Where like, mm -hmm. if, you, if you think about something you plan for the future, there's a prefrontal cortex that lights up. And then if you process visual information, there's the occipital cortex that lights up. So the lighting up is basically increased blood flow to provide oxygen to those brain regions that are more active, they're mitochondria consuming more oxygen, and then there's more blood that's flowing to those areas. And those are pretty sluggish, right? Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. Like the, you start to process visual information and then you're within three, four, five seconds, right? There's a, the signal goes up and then there's kind of a, a slow, Decay, a, a, yeah. yeah, a slow decay. Then there, there are a few reasons. This is hemodynamics. We're looking at blood flow, not directly looking at oxygen consumption, but just to give us a sense of kind of the dynamics. Membrane potential, boom, milliseconds. Mitochondrial, maybe seconds. Uh, and then, you know, a few seconds. And then this uh, a little more slowed down at the physiological scale. So you do endurance training. You start going running every day and you can, you know, 2x or more potentially the number of mitochondria in some of your cells. Does this type of change happen in the brain as well? Like can um, you drastically increase, like if you start studying really hard <laughs> and working out certain circuits in your brain, will, will more mitochondria be created to, to accommodate that change? That is a great don't question. Know? I don't think that there's a good answer to this. Interesting. There's not been a lot of comparatively like the skeletal muscle exercise physiology literature is vast yeah a lot of people have done really good work there uh the Can't brain really is biopsy yeah the brain is harder to, <laughs> the brain yeah. is harder to access yeah, yeah. In, in living people yeah um that's a that's a great question uh, there's yeah. one animal study that looked at this they did exercise training in rats and then they looked at uh gene expression for mitochondrial biogenesis mm -hmm. in the brain mm-hmm the, and then you could say, well, the exercises in the muscle, why would something happen in the brain? Uh, but they found increased, you know, uh, they found induction of mitochondrial biogenesis in the brain itself in response to physical activity. So get, getting into the weeds a little bit here, because I, I just can't help myself um, based, based on my history. Uh, are there ways to uh, image 
the activity of mitochondria in vivo? And then are people using optogenetics to, you know, make them come on and off and do different things? Yes. Yeah. The, <laughs> the first, when I started the lab here uh, at Columbia, the first project that we started was uh, mitoptogenetics. So to try to put a channel of rhodopsin inside the mitochondria. And then with light, you could either, you know, completely discharge the membrane potential and, you know, bring mitochondria, you know, basically kill the mitochondrial uh, battery. Uh, or you could use a different kind of uh, 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 opsin and then use it to pump protons and actually hyperpolarize, you know, hypercharge the, the mitochondrial um, inner mitochondrial membrane. And um, so we, we didn't succeed at, at, you know, it was technically, you know, the molecular genetics there were, were really challenging. <laughs> uh, but some people did succeed. And there was a paper published a few years ago showing proof of concept, you can use light to manipulate mitochondrial membrane potential uh, in cultured cells. I haven't seen anything um, yet on this in vivo. And, you know, the, when we tried, the cells weren't very happy to put this like massive protein, yeah. you know, yeah. inside the mitochondrial inner, the inner mitochondrial membrane. <laughs> so, um, so that's for like the, the optogenetics, you know, uh, approach in terms of Im imaging mitochondria in vivo. Yes, there's, there's a lot. If you go and, you know, Google images video and you ask for mitochondrial uh, motility, mitochondrial, mm. you know, movement um, uh, in vivo, you'll mm -hmm. find a lot of stuff. And, and it's amazing. The mitochondria, you see them move around like along axons or along dendrites yeah. and the shape of the mitochondria. We did a study where we mapped the three-dimensional shape of mitochondria in neurons in the mouse brain um, in the hippocampus, specifically in pyramidal neurons and uh, in the dentate gyrus and in the um, um, CA3, another part of the of the hippocampus. And then you can ask, what do mitochondria look like uh, in those different cells in two different parts of, of the brain? And then also within a cell, within that part of the brain, there's the cell body where the nucleus is and then like the the skin of the cell, the cell membrane around it. And then there's the axon, right? That projects to a very distant area of, of the brain or to outside the brain. And then there's all the dendrites that can receive inputs from other neurons and, and glial cells. Um, and the mitochondria look completely different, right? Mm. The, and in biology, a lot of things, uh, you know, you can glean information and insight into the, the function by looking at the morphology, right? So the form and the function, uh, tend to be related. And the form, the shape of the mitochondria are very different in the dendrites where they're extremely long and branched and can span, you know, several uh, microns in length uh, versus the axons. They tend to be you know, small punctate mitochondria and um, um, and they're much more motile in the axons than in the dendrites where they're much bigger and more stationary. And in the cell body, you have this beautiful population, you know, complexity. <laughs> the same way different humans are different. Um, you have these inter-individual differences and, in, you know, in height and, mm. and size and proportions and skin color and all of this. So you, you get the same kind of population diversity uh, in, in the mitochondrial network inside this, the same cell body. You know, some are super tiny, some are long, some have these branches and some are circular and um, it's, it's beautiful. Interesting. I mean, I was going to ask about because one of the other things that is interesting and different in, in many ways uh, for neurons compared to other cell types is their morphology. Mm -hmm. It's sort of weird in certain ways. Um, they can have these very long shapes. The axons can stretch across the body in some yes. cases. Um, like the dendrites have these very elaborate shapes. And I would imagine that like 
I mean, when you just start to think about what neurons do and, and where they do it at different compartments in the neuron, right, you've got the nucleus of the neuron might be way over on in one area, and then the neuron is reaching its axon way over somewhere else. You know, there's presumably all kinds of metabolically relevant stimuli that the mitochondria in, say, the action in the axon terminal are detecting. And somehow, though, that information, like we were talking about before, needs to get back to the nucleus. How do, and that's a lot long distance to span. So, the, do the mitochondria literally sort of crawl, crawl around, or are there actually mechanisms to actually shuttle them fast? Mm -hmm. Uh, there are mechanisms uh, that's called mitochondrial motility. So uh, some people might have seen like the the, the movies of the walking mm. motor proteins, yeah, you know, yeah. the dynein or the kinesines. Um, it's like actin myosin as well. The myosin can walk on the actin filament for muscles to contract. So there's these specialized uh, motor proteins that exist in you know every cell of, of the body, and there there's some that are then anchored, you know directly to to mitochondria so you have a, a mitochondrion and then it has the kind of adapter protein and then it's attached to the motor protein then the motor protein will walk on a microtubule and then you that's our understanding of how mitochondria generally move around uh, by walking on cytoskeleton through the, those motor proteins and then there are things that uh, if mitochondria sense let's say they're moving around uh, along the axon and then they get to a point where there's a lot of calcium around Right? Calcium, there can be calcium gradients in cells and uh, or changes, you know, rapid changes in calcium. If there's a lot of calcium, mitochondria will stop moving and then they will help buffer the calcium. That's mm. one of the functions I see. Um, that we didn't you know, talk about earlier. Mitochondria will take in calcium to buffer and sequester this calcium. And generally when there's a lot of calcium around, it means there's a need for ATP. So mm -hmm. there's also mechanisms inside the mitochondria that couple, if they take in, if there's a lot of calcium out there, they'll stop, they'll start to take it in. And then when, as they take in calcium, it activates some enzymes, makes uh, metabolic activity uh, accelerate, and then you flow more electrons, you consume more oxygen, you make, and then you can make ATP. So those processes are coupled in a, in a really beautiful way. Uh, so they move around and they respond to their environment. They can stop and restart and move one direction, move the other direction. Uh, as to whether there's mitochondria in the periphery, let's say uh, in the uh, the the very far end of a neuron, you know, that goes out of the spinal cord, right, to connect to uh, to a muscle, the mitochondria there, right, in the the neuromuscular terminal, uh, I don't think we know that those mitochondria can make their way, you know, track all mm. the way back up to you yeah, know to, it's to it's the a cell. long journey. Yeah. Yes, so. And there's actually evidence that the mitochondria in the terminals, uh, you can imagine like everything costs energy, right? right? So if the organism lives in a way that is trying to optimize how much energy it's spending and it's trying to minimize that, uh, either you spend all of this energy to bring this mitochondria all the way back up the axon into the cell body and then there you can autophagy, right? You can self-eat or mitophagy, you can eat the, the mitochondria. Let's say it's no longer useful. Or uh, if you lived as a mitochondria and if you lived in an environment where the cell you're in is buddy with the cell next door and the cell next door you know might be a neuron the one here the the other one next door might be a phagocytic um um glial cell mm -hmm. right so it can be um, uh, like a microglia yeah 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 right and those cells are good they're like the macrophages of the brain they can eat stuff up you know degrade them and so on so um one option again is to travel this mito all the way back up, spend all of the energy, and then you you eat yeah. it up, and then or, it taxes the neuron. Or you ship the mitochondria out <laughs> yeah, yeah. to your neighbor, 
and then you have your neighbor that specializes in this uh, eat up the you know the the damaged you know dysfunctional mitochondrion, and uh, there's probably a great deal of the second option happening because uh, there's a lot of collab you know yeah that makes sense. partnership, and so there, there's there's evidence that cells do this they share mitochondria and some cells eat them and some cells you know make them. I want to um, I want to spend some time talking about aging stuff. Um, there's actually qu- quite a quite a bit I want to get to, but when we just think about aging, very high level. Um, I mean, mitochondria have to be involved in a very important ways in aging. It just seems like it, it must be true given the role that they play in in metabolism, ATP production, things like oxidative stress. So, like how. I'll let you guide us as to where maybe we should start this discussion. But what would what would you say are some of the um, the best well well worked out ways that mitochondria um, contribute to the normal aging process, either preventing mm-hmm. the bad stuff associated with aging from happening, or actually maybe facilitating how it happens or how quickly it happens? Yes. So that's a big question. Huh? <laughs> it almost brings us down to why do we age, and people have been at this question for for a long time and. At, the, at this point in the history of aging research, there's really good evidence that outputs, right, signals from mitochondria contribute in a very important way to the aging process and to kind of the trajectory, if we think about aging as a trajectory. And some of the, and this idea started a long time ago and, the, you know, the rate of living hypothesis. Uh, animals, creatures, um, you know, that have smaller bodies uh, tend to breathe faster. Uh, so they and, and to burn energy much more quickly uh, and then compared to larger animals. So if you think a mouse, for example, the heart rate of a mouse is around 400 beats per minute. So that's 400 beats, per, that's several beats per second, right? Yeah, yeah. What's the heartbeat of a human? More like 60, 70 beats per minute. Um, what's the heartbeat of a whale? Like a very big mammal. I think it's really low, right? It's really low, yeah. yes. <laughs> it's only a few beats uh, every minute. Uh, compared to you know 60 70 for us 400 for the mouse uh, and the metabolic rate you can compute that right how much energy does uh, a whale burn for every minute of life uh, versus humans kind of intermediate size versus a mouse small size and then you can go even smaller than a mouse like a little shrew that's like a gram mm-hmm. uh, the smaller the animals the the faster their metabolic rate so they burn energy mm-hmm. so much um, faster than you know larger creatures and and there's the, then these weird then you can plot this right? yeah so you have on an yeah. x-axis you say how big is a creature <laughs> and then on the y-axis you say how fast is its metabolic rate how quickly does it burn energy how quickly does it you know consume oxygen and there is a remarkable uh you know inverse relationship there the bigger creatures have a much lower metabolic rate than the faster you know smaller creatures um and that's called allometric scaling mm-hmm. And people have talked a lot about this also in relation to lifespan. Yeah. Because that is not disconnected from lifespan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a, a fly, right? <laughs> Which is super tiny. Yeah, yeah. It lives like, you know, a month or two max. Yep. Uh, like Drosophila lives about two months. Uh, a mouse lives like two to three years. Uh, a rat, which is a bit bigger, lives like three to four years. And, uh, you know, monkeys and you, you go... You just keep going to yes. the whales and they live for... Like 200 years, yeah. up to 200 years. So there's this scaling, how big the body is, how much energy to consume. And then you can flip this and say how much energy to consume and how long they live. So there's this inverse relationship. The smaller you are, the faster you breathe, the quicker you die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
and and there are these mathematical you know relationships there are some outliers to this so some people hate these laws because they're bogged down by you know birds don't conform to this law like birds are like outliers in this in these geometric yeah, yeah. scaling for reasons that i think are partially understood and partially not um so there is there is something there i think nobody really agrees on what exactly is there yeah. and but but it is remarkable the relationship i did an entire episode early on with jeffrey west okay. did you read oh, his yes. book scale yes, yes yes yeah so for those listening if, if you're interested in some of these concepts related to lifespan and how things scale living things and non-living <laughs> things he has got a great book and that's a great episode but there is sure there's outliers but when you look at those plots like that's a that's a pretty Tight regression line. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, it's hard to ignore some underlying, you know, conserved biology there when you see this across the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, so um, we've chose not to ignore this and to try to understand it a little bit. And uh, Gabriel uh, Sturm, a, a former student in lab who's now at Berkeley, uh, is working on a paper on this with someone from the Santa Fe Institute, Chris ah, Campus, okay. uh, who's an evolutionary biologist, ecologist, you know, mathematical, mathematical um, whiz. <laughs> so he's just wonderful. And so we've been thinking about these things together and in relation to um, lifespan in a human system. So you can take cells from the human body and put them in a dish and then do an aging study. Mm -hmm. uh, and we call this a cellular lifespan, you know, system or cellular lifespan model. And what this does is, um, well, it's it's taught us two things. One is if you take cells of the human body, let's say you take skin cells, and then those cells, right, they were, let's say, programmed or they were uh, in the in an environment in the human body uh, and they were going to live like 80 or 80, you know, so years, uh, 90 years, 100 years, um, more or less. If you take them out of the human body and then you put them in a dish and then you ask, well, how long are they going to live now, right? Um it's almost like a time perception uh, experiment. So you take cells out, you put them in a dish and say, okay, how long are they going to live now? And then you, what Gabriel did was very patiently uh, took them through their whole lifespan. So you grow the cells for a week and then you take, you know, some of those cells because, uh, you know, if you put a, uh, a few cells, if you know, a few thousand cells, then they're going to divide, divide, divide. And at the end of the week, there's much many more, right? Mm -hmm. So if you put a million cells down, maybe at the end of the week, you have 5 million cells. So then you can take, 1 million from at the end of week one and you seed them for a week number two and then you do another week of lifespan right so it's the same the same population yeah 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 and then you, you the four million cells that you don't need you you put them aside and then you can measure things like dna methylation to use like epigenetic I clocks see. and track yeah. biological aging you can measure telomere length right the the end bit of the chromosomes that shorten uh, as we age or you can measure, you know, bioenergetics. The, the, how many mitochondria are there? How many copies of mitochondrial DNA are there? Or you can also take the media. You know, cells in these experiments, they grow into this liquid um, that feeds them, right? It's the equivalent of the blood. And then you can, me you can measure things and, you know, stuff that cells will secrete uh, to, to understand cellular behavior as they age. So when Gabriel did this for many months we went up to 10 months <laughs> wow every week not missing a week uh at the end of the lifespan right the cells are, are many of them are dead and those that are left they're in this state called senescence mm. so they've entered this kind of end of life stage and they're not no longer replicating they're no longer dividing um so you can quantify like how long did this take 
and you know, I I, meant, I said ten months, right? So cells don't live many more than 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 this. You know, I, I've never heard of a fibroblast uh, lifespan experiment that's more than a year, uh, but humans live more like you know eighty plus a hundred you know years. Um, so that's kind of an interesting observation. But what was you know much more interesting was to look at biological aging markers that people have validated in humans, right? So you can look at telomere length. And then in, in humans, there's good data on popular thousands of people. Uh, what's their rate of telomere shortening over time? Mm -hmm. So if your x-axis on your graph is decades of life, and you start with like 10 years old up to 100 years old, then you have a number of people with telomere length, right? And there's some longitudinal data. It's a little scant, but there's some. Then you can quantify what's the slope here, right? How many, uh, how much length of telomeres do you lose for every year of, of life? So you can actually get a number for this. Now you say, okay, in the dish, what's that slope, right? How quickly are the telomeres eroding for every year of life? Uh, and the, the, the answer is that the erosion in the dish is about 100 times, 50 to 100 times faster than in the human body. Hmm. It's okay, that's telomere length, that's interesting, but the cells in the dish are, are dividing all the time. In the body, not every cell is constantly dividing, right? So and then there are other approaches that are less sensitive to cell division uh, that we've looked at. And we've also showed that the rate of telomere shortening in the dish is not only about cell division, which is kind of a, something that's fairly widely assumed in, in the literature. But we've showed if you herd the mitochondria, so you can pharmacologically Right, you can put a little poison. We were talking about earlier, like antibiotics can, mm. you know, hurt the mitochondria <laughs> as a as a side effect. So there are a lot of really good, you know, targeted poisons for for mitochondria. Like cyanide um, is, you know, the reason cyanide kills people is because it inhibits mitochondria. Interesting. And there are other, you know, fungi and mushroom derived chemicals that were designed to kill bacteria, right? And this war between fungi and prokaryotes and all of this. So you can harvest this pharmacopoeia <laughs> to, uh, to selectively perturbed, right? Or like experimentally manipulate the mitochondria in the dish in those cellular lifespan studies. And what you find if you do this is that if you hurt the mitochondria pharmacologically, right? With a very targeted way or genetically, you can mm -hmm. use tools of genetics or use cells of patients that had a genetic defect in the mitochondria that, as I said earlier, can cause mitochondrial disease. So you can ask, what's the lifespan of those of those cells, right, with the, the mitochondrial defect? Um, and what you find is that the rate at which telomere shorten is not just about cell division. The theory is every time one cell divides, you lose, you know, X number of, of letters in the, the, the telomeres. What we find is that if you perturb the mitochondria pharmacologically or genetically, the number of telomeres, uh, telomere, bases or uh, the length of telomeres lost every cell division is much greater. Uh, so it's uncoupling this loss of telomere length to, to cell division. And there are other tools like DNA methylation based epigenetic clocks uh, that some of your listeners might be uh, aware of. Those clocks work in the dish. And those clocks were designed, right? You take human blood from people that are 10 years old, people that are 100 years old, everyone in between. Then you can train an algorithm. You use machine learning, uh, penalized regression methods to identify some algorithm that will predict someone's age just mm -hmm. based on DNA methylation. So you can take a DNA sample from someone's blood and you can predict with about a three-year accuracy how old this person is. Just by looking at the epigenome, or the, the in, per in particular, this is DNA methylation. Is this where these products start to come in that you're seeing out in the world now, where you can get 
your your uh, your biological age versus your like chronological chrono- age. chronological age exactly yes. and and are those would you say that those are accurate and reasonable uh, so the the epigenetic clocks right so that will quantify biological age are pretty accurate like scaringly accurate they're almost some of them are almost too accurate because hmm. if the clock just says, you know, you're 63 and you look at the calendar and yeah, I am 63 and then the clock says, okay, now, you know, this other person is 22 and they are exactly 82, then the clock is useless because it's just telling you what calendar time is. Yeah. But there's a bit of, you know, variation. And if you're epigenetically, right, or biologically older than your actual age, so this delta, or you're epigenetically younger, then this might tell you something. So I think this is where the whole industry around mm. quantifying your biological age and um, and then trying to do stuff, right? To reduce your biological age, to slow down your, your biological aging. Uh, so yes, that is exactly this. And what Gabriel found uh, three years ago was that the epigenetic clocks work in the dish. So you take these clocks that were trained in human populations and then you say now, okay, I'm not going to apply this to like other human blood samples where it predicts age really well. I'm going to apply this to samples in vitro, right? So you took cells from someone, you put them in a dish, and then you make them, you, you let them age. Then if you take samples at different intervals, then effectively you're creating a longitudinal study mm-hmm. where you're tracking the same person over time. Um, and uh, the result here is that on average, uh, First, the clocks work in vitro, which is really cool. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You can track biological age. And this has convinced us that this model of in human aging in the dish is 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 not just an artifact. Yeah, you have a, you have a reasonable in vitro way to, to study aging. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And this shows also quite convincingly, if you heard the mitochondria, the rate of biological aging is much faster. It's faster if they're, if they're not allowed to freely go where they would otherwise go. Uh, either it's like... You mean the mitochondria, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, so maybe that that's something about like the movement, the mitochondria, and where they go. Maybe it's something about ATP production, mm. right? And the flux of electrons in the electron transport chain. Maybe it's something else, your reactive oxygen species production, mitonuclear communication. There is something that's communicated between the mitochondria where you perturb it pharmacologically or genetically. There's something changed in the mitochondrial uh, biology that in it is transduced inside the nucleus which is where the DNA methylation happens, yeah, right? Yeah. And which is where the telomeres are that shorten faster. So there's there's information being transduced. Um, and one very simple way to think about this is that the mitochondria are what allows cells to perceive time. And if you have good functioning, healthy mitochondria and energy is flowing, you know, kind of at a, at a slow pace, then somehow the cells perceive time in a way that would be consistent with a large mammal, right? That has a very, very slow metabolic rate. Mm. If you're, if there's energy that's flowing much faster through your mitochondria or less efficiently, uh, then somehow that kind of speeds up your perception of time. And um, that's a kind of a loose interpretation of the in vitro findings that we have. I, I guess that does kind of start to make sense. Like the, the larger animals tend to live much longer. They tend to have the slower metabolic rate, um, and they're they're going through life more slowly in mm-hmm. many ways. And you can do that within a single life, right? Like people who are 
people who are in very good shape that do certain forms of exercise have lower resting heart rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though that they, they go through these physical exertions while they're exercising, they're almost like, it's almost like that's buying them this slower baseline yes. metabolic rate. Yes, exactly. And presumably that has some sort of lifespan payoff. Exactly. Exactly. That's, yeah. So you're tying all of these things together into you know a model that's consistent with our understanding. And Herman Ponzer uh, at Duke has uh, this beautiful body of work showing that uh, uh, exercise actually you know does exactly what you're saying. You spend more energy during the exercise, but then after, uh, then the body is in a more you know can operate in a more efficient state, um, and uh, and ultimately maybe. You know, the, the, it's possible, I don't, it's not a fact, but it's possible that the health benefits of exercise could be derived from this. The fact that you train your body to become more efficient. So when yeah. you're not exercising, your heart rate is lower and then you're bringing your body into this, you know, relatively more hypometabolic state which has health advantages. So you become, you bring your metabolism to be more whale-like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. versus if you're stressed out all the time, you're, you're more true. mouse-like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to ask you one last question related to that before we get to um, the gray hair stuff, which is is kind of fun. Um, so based on this like allometric scaling stuff and this relationship between metabolic rate and lifespan, maybe this is not known, but if it's not known, maybe if you think you have a, a clear prediction, what do you think, if you were to measure the average number of mitochondria per cell, per organism, mm-hmm. of all of those organisms on, on some of those plots where, where you're looking at metabolic rate um, versus mass, whales, monkeys, dogs, shrews, like if you were to measure the average number of mitochondria per cell, per animal, would you expect to see uh, a clean relationship there? Or is it not obvious? It's not, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's not obvious. Um, there's a limit to how many mitochondria you can pack in a cell. Yeah, just spatially. Yes. Like, yeah. Um, and it's not just about the number of mitochondria, but it's about how much flux mm-hmm. happens through each. So, you know, mouse muscle has more mitochondria than human muscle, mm-hmm. right? The, the volume density, just the number of mitochondria to make it simple in the mouse muscle cell is about double, you know, to triple what a human uh, is. Uh, but the difference in metabolic rate is not two to three times. It's more like eight times mm-hmm. uh, or or maybe more. Uh, so I don't think that the scaling and even also in lifespan, like a two-year lifespan for a mouse, a 200-year lifespan for a whale, that's a hundredfold. Mm-hmm. Uh, there will not be a hundredfold difference in mitochondrial numbers between mouse and, and whale. I, um, I, I, I don't see this being possible. Interesting. So so anyways, I, I did want to ask you about <clears throat> some some work that you've done that is related to aging, and it's also related to something, a component of aging that everyone is tuned into because it's so visible <laughs> and people people care about what they look like. You know, as, as we all know, when you get older, most people to some extent will have their hair start to turn gray. So what what is that at the cellular level? What's going on and, and why does that, why, do, why does our hair turn gray in the first place? So the reason our hairs and, uh, you know, scalp hair, bead hair, you know, other hairs are colored is because of this protein called melanin uh, that's kind of incorporated in the shaft of the hair and it's made, there's beautiful biology there. Each hair is the product of a little mini organ. Uh, like uh, my collaborator Ralph Paus at Miami likes to say, <laughs> the hair follicle, which is like this, the bulb, right? And, and, and under the skin, 
from which the hair grows out is like a mini organ. And um, there's there are cells there that are specialized in making this melanin colored, you know, colorful pigment. Uh, and then that gets incorporated in the growing hair. So just in, in humans, scalp hair just grows continuously. Um, and, and then it goes through a few phases, but it can grow continuously for very long periods of time. Uh, so that's the source of, of hair color. And in graying, then you lose that, right? So it's just the, the pigment is gone. And uh, there's a few, you know, hypotheses and if decent models for why this happens. And um, at this point, I'm not an expert in, in hair graying. You know, Ralph is, but uh, <laughs> we looked at quite a few hair follicles and a lot of, you know, hair strands from from people who participated in, in our study. Um, and what we found, if you do electron microscopy, for example, you take a white hair and a dark hair from the same person, mm -hmm. right? So it's the same genome, same environment, right? You're exposed to the same stuff, same emotional, psychosocial context, all of this. Yet in the same person, you have some hairs that go gray when you're like 30, and then some hairs that will stay dark until you're like 80. So there's like this beautiful diversity in a genetically homogeneous system, mm -hmm. right? So these changes cannot be genetically driven. So that was the initial point of interest for us to be interested in that. If we could figure out the reason why some hairs are more you know, vulnerable to aging and then they turn gray very early and then some hairs are more resilient, this could be the key to understanding more of you know, the factors that keep some people resilient and some people you know, less resilient. Uh, so the graying uh, is just the loss of the melanin in, in the growing hair. And did um, did this tie into mitochondria at all? Or? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so initially, that, that was probably the only project that we started without having a clear understanding of how mitochondria would fit in the picture. <laughs> um, but I, I, I had read some things when we started to think about... Uh, hair graying and the the idea that there could be this there is this heterogeneity it could give us a new insight into the variation the variability in human aging um inter individual variation in aging uh, and then you know we started to look in the literature and there is some very nice work showing that the mitochondria produce reactive oxygen species mm -hmm. the stuff we were talking about earlier and in the the hair follicle where the hairs grow uh, there's uh, something that seems to happen where the the mitochondria can start to produce you know too much reactive oxygen species and this almost acts as bleach and then kind of, you know, bleaches the hair and maybe has an effect on the melanocytes, the cells that make the melanin. Uh, so there's some cool biology there that people have been looking into for, you know, for a number of years. Uh, and then there was this particularly, uh, you know, cool paper about mitochondria and what they call the ring of fire, like the ring of oxidative stress that could be involved in, in the hair graying. So there was some element, uh, but, you know, we didn't know. And really what was really cool with thinking about the hair to hair variation, what could be at the origin of this. And then very quickly, uh, I was chatting with my partner who's a neuroscientist by training and, <laughs> and then, you know, going through this reasoning of like the same body, same genes, right? Same genome, same environmental exposures, yet this heterogeneity, how the hell could this be? And then the idea was, well, what if you could find on someone's head, like you pull a hair and then uh, the tip is dark, Mm. And then the root is white, right? So somewhere the hair goes from dark, 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 mm -hmm. so it's young, right? Yep. And then it gets old. 
it becomes white. You it loses its color. You gotta catch it at the time that it's yeah. Well, you catch it. The, the beautiful thing with hair is that it grows and it sticks to your head. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So maybe that thing, that transition from young dark to old white, happened let's say three months ago. But three months in hair time is three centimeters. Yeah. So you know, as long as you have hairs that are a few centimeters long, you can find these hairs that are two colored, uh, or these bicolor hair. So, so you know. Uh, and that was that was neat, uh, you know, to think about. And and then we thought, what if you could have hairs where the tip is 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 dark, and then you have a white segment, and then it goes back to dark again. Mm. Like, what if this was reversible? And uh, <laughs> and then Mary said, "Well, I've I've seen hairs like this before." And then I thought, "What? <laughs> white hairs that can go back dark?" She's like, "Yeah." She went to the bathroom and she pulled two out. <laughs> uh, so then she came back to the living room. She's like, "Hey, here." Uh, so right there, we had you know a physical evidence that the hair graying, the hair graying in humans, is at least temporarily reversible. Which, which blew my mind. And, and then that kind of brought us to think about how this could happen. And then we did proteomics. So we, then we launched a study. It was called the, the SMA study, the, the Stress Mitochondria and Aging Hair, S-M-A-H uh, study. So in the SMA study, we started to recruit people and we used a snowball recruitment method where, you know, you tell someone, then they tell their friends. And, and then people were sending us Ziploc bags with hairs in them. Uh, and uh, and then you know we did we developed a method to to digitize uh, you know the same way you would digitize pictures uh, you know old physical pictures mm-hmm. <laughs> like in the good old days you put you know the hair on the scanner you stretch it we you know Ayelet uh, is a student who was doing this in the lab uh, she would iron the hair out <laughs> and then you know tape both ends then you have the you know the hair all stretched out and then you scan it at super high resolution mm. so you push the scanner to its max resolution. And then you get, you know, several pixels for each millimeter of hair. So you get beautiful spatial resolution, which becomes temporal resolution. Yeah. Right? yeah because the yeah. hairs grow over time. And then we were able to quantitatively for the first time show that here's a hair that's dark. Boom. Here are the hairs that's, that's white. And then whoo, it goes back to being dark again. And do we know... Do we know how common that is and what might be driving it at least? <laughs> yes. So that's... That was uh, that know, might literally be a million dollar question. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty common. This was uh, Shannon Rouser, another student in the lab, who that was her challenge to you know collect all of those hairs and uh, do a study to you know see how this changes over time in relation to stress hormones and in relation to like life exposures. And then we developed a tool to map stress over the same period of time. If you have a hairs at twelve centimeters long, then that's about twelve months of of time, right? So you have the historical record or the biological record of this person over the last 12 months and what happened in the way it's encoded in this hair. Um, And then you can ask the person, you know, to go through their calendar and identify the period over the past two years or the past one year that was the most stressful. Mm. And for most people, that's pretty easy. So yeah, this, you know, last June broke up with this, you know, with my partner and this happened, or, you know, like changed job or yeah, yeah, yeah. pandemic happened. Hot, or, yeah. <laughs> uh, I see. Yeah. And then what was the, the least stressful point of, of the past year? And then people are pretty good at identifying this too. And then we asked them to no- identify another like six points and then you connect the dots and then you end up with a profile of stress over the past year. It's flawed, you know, from being a retrospective, but it, yeah. th- that was sufficient to identify uh, statistically significant correlation between 
events of life stress, events of graying. And then when the paper was published, you know, demonstrating this, I've received about, at this point, about 60 emails of people from all over the world, uh, which is amazing. People saying, you know, people were thinking me I was crazy, but uh, I have the hair, you know, it's taped in my fridge if you want it. <laughs> Thank you for showing that, you know, they're not crazy. So the reversal you mean of, people that that had started to gray and then got their color black yeah like, yeah. yeah and or you know they they look in the mirror and say, oh this weird hair that's it's white at the tip and it's dark at the mm-hmm. root how this is not supposed to happen right if yeah. if aging is a unidirectional linear process that we're doomed to go through uh, at a fixed rate you're not supposed to see aging features reverse mm-hmm. so this kind of i think that's why it's a little upsetting for for people and some people mm-hmm you know, react weirdly to this because it, it upsets the, the, the paradigm or the framework from which we work. And I think this data shows hair graying and probably other features of, of uh, aging are more malleable than we used to think. I mean, did you at least start to get a sense of, I mean, was, was there a correlation between like, oh yeah, I had this really stressful period, you know, someone died or I got laid off or whatever. And then something really great happened six months later mm-hmm. and, and that correlated with the, the color coming back. Yeah. So the most striking example we have in, in the paper is uh, uh, a young, you know, Asian um, participant who said, um, you know, she finished, she uh, defended her, her thesis, her PhD thesis, and then, you know, things were fine for a few months. And then she said, I went through the most stressful two months of my life. And she went through a breakup and she had to travel and mm-hmm. and then she had to decide what she was going to do with her life. And so it was very stressful. Her physiology changed. She lost her menses for two months. Um, and then after she decided to take a job in New York City and she, you know, she moved to New York City and, and, uh, um, and now things were good. And mm-hmm. if you look at her stress profile, right, she finished her thesis. It was like a level two out of 10. And then the most stressful two months peak at 10. And then around eight, nine for two months, and then another peak at 10, and then boom, down to about one, and then one for the rest. The hair graying pattern, you superimpose it on top of it. It's the same. It's the hair is dark, 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 and then boom, it becomes white for exactly two months of time. (laughs) Then the stress subsides, and then the hair gets its color back. This was amazing. P equal 0.007, if you do a statistics on that. Now, is this, that's remarkable, and it's totally believable. Um, but at the same time, when you when you just look at people in our life, you don't usually see that, right? Mm-hmm. We don't we don't really notice that. And so, is it just an uncommon thing? Are these unusual individuals who had an extremely high amount of stress but low baseline, or do you think that this that like anyone could achieve such a thing? Yes, I think anyone can achieve such a thing. We've seen this now in like a. Is it a nine-year-old girl uh, from Europe? Uh, she had a, a white hair that reverted back to dark. Um, beard hair from like a 30-some-year-old uh, male. Pubic hair <laughs> from a 30-some-year-old uh, woman. Uh, so it happens in all sorts of regions of the body and all sorts of people. When you start to look, uh, then you start to, to find them. And I think we typically don't see them. I had never seen this. Yeah. Uh, and, and then when we started to look, you know, we found, uh, you know, we recruited for about two years. And we found 17 people. So it's not a ton, right? And since the paper is published and it was in, you know, in the media a little bit, so it, it, it reached a large number of people, out of everyone it reached, there's a, a fraction of those that you know, noticed 
that had experienced this, they, they saw two colored hair in, in their on their head, and 55 of those people kind of found my email somewhere and you know emailed me. Uh, so at this point, we think it's pretty common, and uh, we ran a survey with uh, my colleague Ralph Paus in Miami to ask you know those people who had you know contacted us uh, what how many hairs did they find in their hair and was there stress associated with this transition reversal and so on. So, uh, so it seems like it's decently uh, frequent, and it's not kind of a um, a, a once, you know, in, in a blue moon type of event. Interesting. Well, we've, we've talked about mitochondria for two hours. Uh, and there, there's just a lot of fascinating stuff here that connects to, to so many things and we didn't even get to all of them. Um, it sounds like, I mean, if you think of health in a mitochondria centric way, it seems like some of the sort of very basic practical takeaways for people, if they want healthy, uh, vibrant mitochondria are, Definitely, you need to have some exercise, endurance exercise. Um, you don't need to be a marathon runner, but if you're not getting it, there's your mitochondria are not going to be uh, mm -hmm. be used in maybe the, the best way or the most efficient way that they could be. And also, it sounded like if you have an extremely uh, carb and sugar-centric diet, that would be another thing that's not going to sort of optimize your mitochondria, basically. Yes, I wouldn't make strong claims based on my knowledge of yeah. like the the type of diet. Uh, I think clearly refined sugars are, are toxic. That's that's no uh, <laughs> there's no magic there. Uh, not eating too much is the way I would phrase mm. it. Right, like, just just the amount of calories. The amount of calories, the timing of calories, like we discussed, is probably yeah. you know relevant. So to your first point, movement. Mm -hmm. Like if you can take the stairs instead of taking the elevator to go two flight of, of stairs, right? Yeah. Or you can walk instead of taking the, the car or like these little details, just physical activity. Mm -hmm. There's good evidence. You don't need to be a marathon runner and to exercise like a maniac to derive benefits of moving. Mm -hmm. Just moving anything that makes you breathe a little harder is good for you. It's good for your mitochondria and not eating too much. Uh, yes, it, it stimulates you know your your mitochondria gives them a purpose and uh there's also evidence if you if you're hungry right that actually stimulates processes that get rid of the bad mitochondria this mm, mitophagy stuff like like older mitochondria yes yeah. so quality control i see, so when I see. you're hungry the body kind of goes into this mode of i need to get rid of the stuff i don't need mm. and then if you have mitochondria that are on the edge like are they well functioning or not if they're challenged or if the cell goes into this starvation mode, mode a little bit, then it will, you know, digest the, the not so useful things, which can include old mitochondria. What happens if you don't get rid of those old mitochondria? Do they start causing collateral damage? That's that's the idea. Yeah. And there's there's a few kind of indirect lines of evidence that, yes, that's the case. If you fail to uh, to degrade the poorly functioning mitochondria, they can kind of hurt the, the functioning of, of the the whole mitochondrial community. The same way that, you know, if you have <laughs> uh, a, a bad apple in a social context, right, that person can have a negative effect on, on other people. So if you think about mitochondria as dynamic little social organisms, um, uh, yes, having poorly functioning or, you know, damaged mitochondria in, that are not getting degraded could deleterious, uh, could have deleterious effects on, on the functioning of the system as a whole. And um, I guess I'll end with, you know, I, I probably, I would have liked to dwell on the, the mind mitochondria area of discussion a little bit more. Could you maybe end by just describing, you know, with respect to the so-called mind mitochondria connection, what's sort of an exciting area of research that's on the cutting edge where you think will also make some real progress in the next mm -hmm. few years? What kinds of questions do you think are uh, answerable, but haven't been answered yet? Yes, that's a great question. 
um, to add to what we just said, like moving stimulates your mitochondria, not eating too much or being hungry once in a while stimulates mitochondria, gets rid of the bad ones. Uh, some of our recent work and the work of others shows that your the psychological states can mm. actually manifest in in, in in molecular terms in the mitochondria and change maybe the function, maybe the content of the mitochondria. And one of our uh, early study in that area of the mind-mitochondria connection showed that uh, women who felt uh, more positive emotions, right, positive mood, it's called. Uh, so a woman who's you know on a questionnaire that asked this past uh, you know, 24 hours today, uh, and the answer is in the evening. So today, how much of this did you feel, right? And then you have items that are like, today I felt, you know, love, compassion, and trust, right? There are some days we all feel some of it. <laughs> and if you wake up, you know, with someone that you love, and then you have some good positive interactions in the morning, or, you know, you see a good friend, or, right, then you can feel quite a bit of this. And then there's some other days where you don't feel love, compassion, and trust. <laughs> and you feel more things like, you know, disgust, betrayed, and depressed, or sad, and downhearted. And um, so by rating a bunch of positive items like this, you know, being inspired or, you know, excited uh, or more negative stuff like being depressed, uh, then you can get a sense of how positive, how negative people feel. And when we did it, that first study with the mitochondrial health index, so it's getting at the energy production capacity on a per mitochondrion basis, right? So almost like the quality of the mitochondria in white blood cells. We found that women who said, I felt positive, right? More positive the day before they gave blood. So if let's say on the, on the Wednesday, they say, today I felt really good. The next day, their mitochondria are like 10 to 15% uh, have higher MHI. <laughs> the mitochondrial health index was higher when yes. they had a really good day. Yes, basically. When they had a very good positive experience, right? They, they, when they had experienced a lot of positive emotions the day before. And two days before, the effect was there also, but a little more attenuated. And three days before, also more attenuated. And then you can ask the reverse question, you know, is this connection just bi-directional or is it that uh, the mood drives, right, or influences the mitochondria or is it the mitochondria that influences how you feel? Mm -hmm. And by having this kind of temporal sequence where you ask people how, you, how they feel multiple days in a row and then what their mitochondria look like or the MHI is, and then you continue to ask them after you measure the MHI, uh, that study provided directional evidence showing that the mood predicted mitochondria and up to 15% of, you know, higher or lower MHI was explained by mood the day before, but mitochondrial MHI on, on, on that day didn't predict mood on future days. So uh, that was, I, I think, the first evidence of a directional, you know, connection and short-lived, right? Mm -hmm. Short-lived or at least you know rapid acting within 24 hours, your mood might translate into the function of your mitochondria. So this study needs to be replicated. It needs to be done better in a design where you measure mitochondria, you know, more frequently and you know more often and with you know better measures than our early MHI. So we're developing new methods to do this. Mm -hmm. um, so this was kind of the first foray into this mind-mitochondria connection that convinced us there's something worth looking at. Yeah. And we're doing more studies now to understand, well, if your mitochondria change, how why does this matter? Right? Yeah. Does this bring you more energy? Does it change how you respond to stress and uh, how you think and yeah. the function of your brain and so on? Well, I mean the folk psychology here is suggestive, right? We we all experience states where we we feel feel like our mind is working better when we're in a relatively good mood. But at the very least, what I'm abstracting from what you just said is within a 24-hour period, the 
this index that you're talking about, about the, how efficient the mitochondria are, can change 10 to 15% at least, which is significant, which mm-hmm. is enough that it, right, that, it, that must have consequences for, for how your brain circuits are, how efficiently they're functioning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wh- whatever the details are, it's, you know, on a day-to-day basis, there's that level of uh, change in the energetic efficiency, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. If, you know, 10, 15% more energy or less energy um, can be substantial. You know, we know this from uh, model systems and, and, and experiments. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that makes a, a pretty big difference. Uh, and if you just think about energy in terms of calories, mm-hmm. like if you eat 10%, 10, 15% more or less calories yeah. every day, uh, that, that's, a, that's a huge difference. And then if we bring this back to lifespan and, uh, you know, how much energy you're burning through, yeah. if you burn energy much faster, uh, then, you know, that, um, so there's likely a connection there, at least a, a good hypothesis that we're pursuing uh, that human ex- you know, experience, uh, psychological states get under the skin, influences you know, things like metabolic rate and influences the rate of aging through an effect on mitochondria, right? So this becomes kind of a, a mind mitochondria to health axis. And there's you know a lot of things to test, and a lot of you know points to 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 confirm along that that axis. All right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end it, uh, Martin. Thank you for for taking the time and, and sharing this stuff with with us. It was uh, I, I thought it was really fascinating. Great, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.